Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, Alex Goldner will join me and we'll talk a little bit about lower thirds, lower thirds in motion and how to get those into Final Cut. Um, we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about motion as we kind of go through this process. Um, we think that it's a it's an app that a lot of people are missing <laughs> using. So we'll, we'll be talking about that for a little, uh, a couple Tuesdays just to kind of introduce it a little bit more. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. First in, Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida, asking, can we talk about the production value of the YouTube live event? Seems like even the biggest companies are using work from home as a free pass to put zero effort into their events. Well, that was a, it was a very heavily voted question. So evidently, a lot of people saw it and had opinions. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah. So first and foremost, it, it should not escape any of us that YouTube long time has become, I think, the second largest search engine that anybody on the planet uses. They have gazillions of eyeballs traveling there all the time. So it doesn't surprise me at all that like everyone else, they're interested in exploring how to be more engaging to the audience, how to provide more services. So the fact that they're doing live streaming now surprises me not at all. They want to keep that audience there and make sure they don't migrate out to anything else. Um, I do think that this for them is like the early days. It reminds me of desktop publishing where in the beginning you didn't have the capability to print things at home. Then laser printers came out and you didn't. Suddenly there was a lot of drecky kind of work done. Eventually over the course of maybe five, ten years, it settled down and the people who were really good at it were obviously really good at it and everybody else kind of fell away. And I kind of feel like the whole live event online thing is going to go through the same thing. Right now, there's just too many people in there. There's a lot of people doing it very poorly. They will eventually find places like what we do here who are very oriented at making sure that the quality stays high. And I think people who are going to school on things like office hours will do well in the long-range transfer. People who are putting out those schlocky events will eventually fall by the wayside. That's my thought anyway. Go ahead, Mitchell. It's no accident that uh, we sound and we look good here on office hours. We work very hard at that. And um, maybe it's just hard to motivate some people as to the uh, apparent worth of having a good impression sound-wise and video-wise. So it's a shame because the anecdote comes to mind. If you're a plumber and selling plumber services, you don't want a leaky faucet. Yeah, I, you know, I think that... Um it's hard. It's hard because there's a certain company culture of like, this is okay. It's one of the reasons that we want to do the show every day is to remind people that it doesn't have to look like that. You know, like it doesn't have to, that you can get on Zoom and put it, produce a show that looks and sounds pretty good, you know, like, and, and that it, it, you know, you know, close to broadcast, you know, I'm not going to claim broadcast yet, but we're on our way. And, um, and we want to keep on, and, but, you know, p people ask, like, why are we doing HDR and why are we doing, you know, why are we experimenting with that and why are we doing 4K and why are we doing 5.1? It's, it's to keep on pushing the envelope and show people that you don't have, you know, it doesn't have to be your webcam. <laughs> you know, like, like you can do this at home, you can put this together. And, and I think that that's the, um, you know, it's why we do what we're doing here. I think it's, it is, uh, I do want to thank YouTube. We're, we're making this comment because they actually sent us a link to, to go to the, to go to their show. So, so we put the link out for everyone. Hey, cause YouTube sent, sent us the link so that I could post it on in discord. And now we're watching it and then we're complaining. <laughs> so we should probably not look at the gift horse too closely in the mouth, but, but the, um, um, but anyway, but I think that it is, 
you know, it's great content, by the way. So everyone, it, there's another day of it. And if you haven't seen it, it's in our Discord. It's in my announcements. There's another day of that. And there's a lot of great discussions. We just wish they'd use better cameras. Yeah, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I wish these corporations would just get allocated like a $1,000 budget for folks that are going to appear by standard issue kit. You'd have an Insta360 link, a decent microphone, you know, something like an AT2020 from Audio-Technica that's like $200 USB mic and then a, a couple lights, like a couple aperture lights in the $200 range and done deal. And then the next level would be, you know, 1000 to 5000 and just pockets in my camera or whatever is the next level. But I wish that uh, there was just a piece of this information on the internet where that was updated because that's the thing is we've done this in the past but all that stuff's got you know we used to recommend the brio and now there's the osbot and there's all these other great cameras but yeah i think if they saw the difference especially if we pointed it out like here's where your standard issue pc laptop up the no shot here's how it looks and sounds and here's what we can do with a thousand bucks in this kit and here's the next level so i think we just got to we got to train them because it, it's unacceptable for a company that's a media company to put out that kind of content to that level of audience. It's just, it's we, not we, right. We need one of those before and after shows where we just go to someone's, you know, we go there and we look at what they're doing and then we, it's like the, you know, like when they get all made up or they get, you know, they clean some, somebody up completely or, you know, it's like, it's like a whole makeover. Zoom, yeah, the, zoom we, makeover. Zoom makeover. <laughs> and, 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 and we take away. Yeah, we, you were just, he was just using the, 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 the camera on his laptop, you know, like, like, you know, and so yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. What's your favorite way to motivate people? What is it? Shame and ridicule? Shame and ridicule. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We don't want to do that quite here, but, but we, we do want to point out it doesn't have to be that way. So um, you can you can definitely make it better. And, and that's our goal. Our goal here is to, I mean, we work hard and to make these this uh, this show look and sound as, as good as we do. And, and admittedly, we probably have more people working on the show this morning than they than than that of conference has working on it. And we do that every day. So, so but I think that, you know, we are looking at also um, – you know, and, and what Own I Know does and what I did in Pixelcore was to do make these things look better. So so hopefully, um, you know, and, and send out kits and, you know, we've done a lot of that as well. So it's not that it can't be done. I think it's just a matter of what people think is important and how much budget was allocated and so on and so forth. But if you look at what it costs to do a physical event for however many people went to watch that, you know, the, the, the mistake that uh, – most people make is that they they go oh well it's online and we'll just do it as a webinar and it won't cost anything and my argument is just give me half just give me half of what you were going to spend on a physical event and you'll never go back like ever <laughs> like you'll be like why was i ever doing this if you give me half of what you spent because i mean I, I work on these events i know how much they cost you know and so these are half million dollar events million dollar events hundred thousand dollar events you give me half of that and you're not going to have an experience that you're going to be like, why was I doing this in person? You know, like it's just, but, but when you do it for one tenth or, or one hundredth of the, of the, of the, of the thing, if you spent that in the real world, no one would think that that was a good idea either. Um, next question. John Foltz from Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania has a question. I have a broadcasting student interested in getting into video engineering. Since I'm mostly a production person, where should I send her for resources, training, and info on how to get started? Thanks for any help. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I don't think that it depends on your area of video engineering that you're looking for. Uh, it's, it seems that um, 
you know, I would say the best place if you're looking for video engineering specifically, like television video engineering, is go to your local television station, uh, work as an intern, and uh, befriend the engineer there. Tell them you want to learn all you can. That's one. Of the, that's the way I learned, and didn't take any specific classes. I mean, there are classes. A lot of uh, like at UCLA, there's a UCLA Extension used to offer a couple of classes in video engineering, which gives you just the basics, like how to read scopes and you know the composition of a video video signal, et cetera, et cetera. But video these days is so diverse, it's used on everything from major motion pictures uh, with uh, video assist monitoring on the set to projection, theatrical projection, uh, television engineering. Uh, it's used everywhere, and it depends on what type of video you're talking about. The The techniques and the uh, engineering is completely different in each one of those genres. So figure out which genre you want to work in and find an engineer and befriend them and, and work as an assistant. Sorry, I got lost on my pages here. Where did I go? I was I was trying to figure out where where this was. Give it, Mitchell. Yeah, it. Uh, I agree with Courtney. I think he's on on target there. If you go to a college or even a high school that has a video program, you get an overview uh, of the technical stuff. But if you really want to get the nuts and bolts, do exactly what Courtney was suggesting: get an internship at a local uh, TV station or even a cable operation. Um, you're going to be dealing with engineers. They're going to show you the granular aspects which is really valuable uh, of what you're going to have to learn. So it, it, it's interesting that in our uh, line of work, there aren't more uh, institutions out there uh, to train and to educate uh, more about this. I think there's one of the people had mentioned, Simpty has some programs, and Courtney probably could speak more to that. But uh, getting the actual intern uh, apprenticeship uh, uh, teaching is probably the best value, if, particularly if you want to learn some of the uh, actual technical aspects. Yeah, and you're in the middle of the state, middle of Pennsylvania. Um, I would also look at uh, looking at internships uh, as they relate to Rocklitz. Rocklitz is probably the most technical uh, place that does video and audio and other things um, in your air in the area that you're in. Um, and I would they're they're very smart. <laughs> so, Lancaster, so, so Pennsylvania. Like, yeah, let's just just north of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Lettuce, Pennsylvania, and um, there's a, they they have a lot of capacity there. Um, but it's a good way. They have to think about those things at an extremely technical position um, because of what they do. So so anyway, so um, take, take a look at that. Next question. Paul Buchan from Columbus, Ohio. What are the IP-based alternatives to satellite pool feeds for live broadcasting? A landing page with a live stream or are there more standard solutions? Good guy. Yeah, one of the ones that I've seen is TVU Networks. They have a, uh, a back end where basically these feeds go up and then you can SRT, you can enter in your own SRT address and have it shoot over to your uh, decoder and bring it into your feed. So it looks like this. Um, this is their grid, vid grid video um, app. And it's one of them where you can just grab feeds that are constantly on. Like these ones are all... Um, Looks like uh, Speaker of the House. I mean, these are live. These are going on. And right you don't now. have to have a TVU to do it. It'll just send to yeah, your you could, endpoint. You could specify your SRT feed and it'll come to you over SRT. So there's that's other great. protocols in there as well, but you, you have to pay for this stuff. But yeah, that's one of the um, one of the outlets out there. There's there's more, I'm sure. Yeah, most of the time when we've done it, we, there's been a couple of things. For the major broadcasters that want to use IP, and these are and typically internet-based broadcasters. So when we do an event... Typically, there's a couple layers of, of pull feeds. Uh, the, the, the top of the line pull feed is the switch. And so we, we will drop something to the switch. This is not an IP. So, I mean, it, it is an IP. It's technically an IP solution, but it's not. A, you have to have a subscription with the, the switch as a network. Um, so we'll put 
uh, an event on the switch and drop it into New York, typically New York, D.C., L.A., um, and that usually hits all of the major networks unless there's something if it's if it's a technology based thing, we'll put it in. Uh, in San Francisco and then sometimes Chicago. The reason you put these in different cities is it's, it makes sure that the news broadcasters don't have to pay long-distance charges for those um, that transmit. Now, that is nearly uncompressed HD video. So that's a, a much different uh, process there. And, and it you know, has some pretty significant expenses connected to it. Other people use LTN to do this. Um, so these are the two big ones that we use. And then, of course, we often put, put it up on a satellite um, and then make it free to air. So those are the three things that we oftentimes use to get this out to most of the networks. Then if we have a large IP client that wants to do it, we will actually ask them how they want to get it done. And we'll set something up where we're sending it to them directly, <clears throat> kind of handcraft that for each one of them. Then when we do, when we've done the other ones, and TVU sounds like a great idea. What we've done in the past is do H HLS, you know, just basically an HLS pool. So we just sent there, make it, make it available via HLS, give them the address, and they can pull it from there and, and run it. So that's a, and that has been a relatively uh, easy thing to do, and it's something we just can do on AWS. You just, you just put it up there, and they can just once they have the address, they can pull the pull the data from there. Um, and that's been <clears throat> how we handled most of those. But um, the TBU one looks like a really interesting solution. Next question. Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York, asked, Morning, everyone. I was going to wait for Audio Day, but what impact do you think Rhodes' acquisition of Mackey will have on the market in the near future? Good, Bill. Well, there's a lot more competition now, so I think not as much as it would have. But Mackey is a fascinating story. I think uh, I think it was Greg Mackey and his wife started this as a small boutique thing. They had a huge impact. I can't tell you the number of 1202s and those early Mackey mixers, which were really good for the price. They were U.S. built. They were solid as a rock. A lot of us used them for decades. Eventually, they had to move their outsourcing overseas and they got into the bigger things. But they just grown the company and grown the company and grown the company. Um Road is now on a roll. They've got so many products out in the mix now, and they're making a lot of money. And so it, it, it seems like a perfectly sensible acquisition to me. And I'm pretty sure that the Mackey uh, founders are now at that point in life where they just want to step back. And so the fact that they found it and the brand will go on kind of makes makes me feel good, makes me feel warm and fuzzy. This is the traditional American entrepreneur story gone very good. And um, they helped a lot of us all along the way. It, seem, it seems to be the, the MO for the Australian companies is to find American companies with great technology and business models that aren't working and buy them, which is yeah. Black Magic's MO. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, who hasn't had a, a 1200 series uh, Mackie board uh, that they've lived with? And they've occupied a niche in the marketplace for so very long, and I think it just got very crowded for them. And perhaps that's why the uh, their efforts to expand into – amplifiers and um, uh, mixers and other other devices that relate to it. I think it was very strategic of Road to purchase them because they got a brand that everybody recognizes. And as long as they maintain that uh, that Mackie niche, so to speak, I think that will fill out their uh, uh, their product line very well. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Mackie used to be big in the prosumer uh, mixer and recorder and software market. Um, but you know, Behringer kind of ate their lunch. I think that Behringer took away a lot of their business, and they really kind of dropped down the list of the competitors in that area. And I think uh, they're kind of looking at how they're going to claw their way back, and I don't think they can compete with the Behringer's uh, price-wise and feature-wise. You know, Behringer's just doing knockoffs of everybody and was for years. So I think it was wise for them to sell out to Road. Road can use it to take it in a new direction and 
<clears throat> can apply their uh, digital mixers, you know, have them produce them, have, have a foothold in the United States. Uh, Rode can do that, so it's a little closer than Australia. So I think it's probably a good thing for Rode and Mackie. It's probably the, the right time to get out for them. Good guy. Yeah, Rhodes made a few acquisitions over the years. Uh, Apex, uh, they've acquired Event, which is loudspeakers, um, Soundfield. So they've got their their toe in that water as well. But Live Sound is where the, um, Peter Friedman uh, cut his teeth. So he's looking at the IP. So this is really IP uh, being able to grab patents. Uh, uh, and you know, like Courtney said, Behringer really ate their their lunch. I, I don't want to say copy, but yeah, you could you can tell that they they took a maybe a little bit of Mackey's. Uh, um, history there, and and uh, they were graphic for graphic clones at one point. <laughs> I mean, yeah, literally, I you couldn't look at a twelve oh two and a Behringer knockoff and not and see any differences at all. Yeah, so I think it's it's more of a financing thing. I think it's where Rhodes big big dollars that they've made over the last few years have attracted some some big money, and so it's a privately held company. So we don't know what those those numbers are. But Peter Friedman did make uh, the Australian uh, top one hundred entrepreneur list uh, as far as uh, personal personal income. So he's up there with, 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 uh, Grant Petty, you know, he's, he's got the money now, the banks are paying attention so he can make some acquisitions and roll that stuff into the line and then watch out. Cause now they got the loudspeaker market. So that event, um, live event sound is the market that they're going after. And we'll see some interesting things at, uh, NAM 2024. I, I don't think it'll make any difference in, in, immediately. I mean, I think that probably, we're probably going to see something in 2025, 2026 is, is going to be the real results of what this ha what, what's happening here. I do think it's interesting. There's a lot of, so much, so much technology in Australia. I blame JCAR. JCAR is the uh, electronic store that happened, that's down there. It's like Radio Shack on steroids. And I think you just have more kids and more, more people playing with electronics. <laughs> you end up with smart, a smarter group of people that are working on electronics. So anyway. It's, it's interesting. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, with Blackmagic Design ruling the iOS camera roost now, do you think that we'll see any attention to the ATEM Black Crush? It's not, it's not crushing across all the products. It's crushing when it's converting to H.265 and H.264, and it does appear to be that it happens across many products. It's not going to affect the iPhone at all. Like, you know, like that, the, the, the in-processing is completely different. I, I, I believe that the issue that we're seeing with the crush is really related to a chipset that probably can't be changed from the, 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 the devices that have it. Um, so I think that I don't know how they fix it for everything else, but it's not going to affect the phone at all. Um, I think that what, what is being related to, and I don't know if we talked about it on this show or not, but Filmic laid off their entire, uh, their entire team. Um, you know, and I think a lot of us, I think we talked about it here on the show almost immediately, like, well, that's that. <laughs> you know, because, and the problem was it's a one-two punch. They, they uh, Filmic... Who have been on our show and our friends of the show, you know, I think that the, the new ownership really wanted to go into subscription, which really turned off an enormous number of their users. And I think that they thought they could fo force that because they were the best in the market. Like they were definitely the high watermark in the market. And then something else came in above them. And that's the one thing that can't happen, especially when it's free, can't happen when you are, when you've done, you know, when you've basically, they had to get through kind of the transition period where people were really upset about the subscription. And they just didn't get to the other side of that hill before Blackmagic came in with a, a product that's probably four times as capable of, as Filmic. You know, like like that's the, I mean, that's, I, I've, I've had Filmic for years and I'm using the Blackmagic camera almost every day. And I can tell you that it's about four times the features of, of it. And it's hard. You, the one thing I will say is if you're using the Blackmagic camera, you do need to use it every day to figure out where all those buttons are because it's a, it's a pretty complicated, it's as complicated as a regular camera. Um, next question. 
It's a QR code question coming in from Francis Frey from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I want to delay the audio out of my Rodecaster Pro 2 before it goes into Zoom in order to sync with video. I can't use the output delay in the Rodecaster Pro because I'm using a custom mix like a hardware solution. Oh, so you want something that is interesting. You want to put something else in that line to slow it down. Um, you know, one thing to look at is whether you're using a Mac or PC, you may end up wanting to use software to delay that audio. So you can delay the audio and software. Um, I think that, I think Hijack will do it. Audio Hijack will do it on the Mac, but I'm not sure what will happen on the PC. Uh, I'm trying to think of like the... I don't know of a lot of inexpensive ways to delay audio going into the computer. That's the only thing that I'm I'm just trying to think of. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, it, we used to have to do this a lot when we were doing PA for large events where you have an audience up close to a stage and then you have an audience in the back. There are a lot of hardware delay units that work in milliseconds. Uh, the typical use for them is so that the stacks on the stage are putting out sound and it's going to eventually get to another set of speakers in the back, maybe a hundred yards away. So there is a perceptible delay in that audio. So they have a lot of hardware things. And I'm trying to remember some of the brands that I used to use, uh, and they're not coming to me right now. But if you look at hardware delay, uh, you'll find units that are specifically designed to delay your audience, uh, your audio in a very precise fashion, usually used for live sound. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, we used to use the thing uh, from Behringer called a Behringer Shark. Uh, you can still find them. Uh, here's one for 75 I, bucks. I, 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 <laughs> I just have to say that, that I used to own 10 of these, and I, yeah. I, they're so They're hard noisy. to deal with. And they're they're so noisy. noisy. They've yeah. they're been discontinued, and, and, and you can them. only find them used. And it's not the <laughs> highest try, resolution try, delay you can find. Try, you can try over-modulating yeah. that. Over-modulating on the, on the Shark is super painful. Like, it, it just, it's it's like just great. It's, I don't know. It's a serrated knife against... You know, but what has replaced it? Where's a cheap single unit delay line that you can buy? Hardware delay that you can plug in. I yeah, we used to spend five six hundred dollars for the rack mount delays for what I was talking about. So it was hard to find yeah. things cheap. There's a there's one here that's called a, I, and I I haven't um, I've I've not used this, but Ccom Sescom makes a lip sync corrector, which is some type of uh, thing here. I'm just looking at, it, but it looks like it's just a for home theater. So it's like I don't know. Yeah. Um, it looks like a might be. I can't tell what it is. I can't tell. It, it, it's the the pictures aren't very good. Um, but yeah, the, the, I, there's definitely units that will do this. I think that the, the real challenge that I'm trying to think of is if you're doing this, how much money do you want to spend to put into it? So because there's lots of things at two, three, four, five hundred dollars that can do delay. I think the question is really what is the what's one that given that you have a Roadcaster Pro, what's something that's not as expensive as the Roadcaster Pro to do the delay is uh, that you're trying to do? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I was just going to agree with you on that. There's a bunch of DSP boxes out there, like from uh, Symmetrics and companies like that, that'll do it, but none in that same price range. You need something that uh, just a simple analog or digital delay, as long as it's not noisy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, but I, I don't have a lot of, I don't have anything that I would recommend out of the gate only because I just, um, a lot of our systems, a lot of our mixers, a lot of our, uh, you know, ha have some sort of delay. Does a, does it like, I mean, like you could put an XR18 in the middle of it and it'll, you can do it there. I'm trying to think of like, and a Flow 8, I think has delay in it, but that'd be putting a mixer beside a mixer. So that, that seems like it would be a lot of money to spend. But I, I, I will say that the Flow 8 is probably the cheapest thing that I know of 
that will that will do the delay. So so that might be, and I think it does delay. I I, I believe it does. Um, uh, next question. Zach Stallsmith from Chautauqua, New York. I digitize VHS tapes and older media, and I want to change my setup to have each VSR send signals to my machine via HDMI using the RCA to HDMI adapter. Pros and cons of the Blackmagic Design Decklink Quad HDMI recorder. I got it, Bill. Well, they certainly have the engineering talent to do this. I used to do this a lot. They had a little program, a little product called the video recorder that I was able to plug into the side of my Mac and it pigtailed out to RCA, um, you know, two audios and one video. And its transcodes were remarkably okay. I think it had H.264 built on deck. You may be trying to get higher quality than that, but I do know that their engineering team understands this thing pretty well. So I would have a pretty warm and fuzzy, good feeling toward back magic designs solutions in this area good guy yeah if you're not doing a whole lot of this i would just farm it out and get it converted professionally because the guys that do this really well have a svhs deck with a tbc in it and the the difference is pretty remarkable as to the quality so if you're ever bringing in vhs footage to edit uh, do do your homework and look at either acquiring the gear because you can buy these decks i have one it's a svhs deck and then i've got up down cross converters and it, it it's a it's a big hassle but if you're just doing a onesie twosies farm it out to somebody who already has one of these because if you, if you do the research uh you could find uh i'll put a link to this but you could see what what happens when there's a an svhs deck with the tbc and without you just get all this interlacing artifacts and it's just it's just a mess so i would recommend uh farming it out to somebody that has the equipment so that, and has done all that research because it, it's a lot i mean you could spend 100 hours just getting it all configured good mitchell yeah, I agree with Guy. I think that if you're doing a one-off, obviously farming out. But if you're going to do this on a regular basis, get a decent VHS deck that uh, will uh, shorten the distance between what you want to accomplish and what you're trying to do. Um, there are VHS. I did, did a little search on it. There are a bunch of VHS decks uh, that output HDMI and have the time-based corrector in them. And they also generally have DVD players in them, too. So for like two or $300, you can get uh, stuff that will plug directly into your computer and accomplish that rather than having ex- the expense of deck link cards and uh, other converters and things like that. Good, Courtney. And, you know, I always recommend the standalone uh, capture devices. Look for game capture cards. And some there are some of them out there that have uh, analog inputs that have uh, S-video uh, and or just regular composite video and audio inputs and will record new H.264 recording right to uh, uh, a disk drive, a USB disk drive, uh, or an SD card. So you can look at those. And uh, it's the cheapest, easiest way to do it, and you don't involve a lot of software and computer uh, accessories and so on. Yeah, and I would go back to, um, if you have less than 50 tapes, send it out. Like, it's just, it is a, to get this correction correct, you know, right is hard. You know, like, it, you know, like if you really, if you're going to go through the trouble of, I want to capture this so I can save it for into you know, give to my kids or save for my archives or whatever, uh, getting VHS, every VHS tape to look good is not trivial. Like just, just know that it's not just plugging it in and making it work. It, it is, you want to send that out. I have a high eight tape that I have to figure out where to send to because I want to finally get the, the content off of it. Same thing. I'm not going to even try to even play it. Like, you know, like I'm just going to send it out to somebody to have, have that handled. Uh, next question. Vic Hernandez from Springfield, Missouri, asked a question. May I have a recommendation for a 3D printer with an enclosure and a duct for venting? Or would an active airflow possibly interfere with the printing process? Up to $500. Uh, go ahead, Bill. 
I don't think it's going to interfere with the process. What I would be concerned about is uh, if you're going to do some kind of positive airflow uh, venting, um, just you're, you're probably worried about the ink drying out over the course of time. So what I would probably do is make sure that it's on some kind of a timed switch. So you turn it on just when you need it. I wouldn't let it you know, run all the time attached to your printer in an enclosure because I think that positive airflow uh, might cause you problems. Uh, if you're going down this direction, I've used these in my voice booths for years. It's a very quiet low uh, flow, but it can actually pop up to pretty decent flow ventilation things. And they've come down in price because people are using them for other things than what I use them for, which is always my booth ventilation. And uh, they've been really positive for me. But I would worry if that much airflow was hitting your print cartridges that are full of ink because it may dry them out over the course of time. I don't know if I ever pronounced this right. I use a Quiddy Tech, um, which is... Um, a, uh, you know, it's an enclosed one. That's what I have in my house. I don't control the airflow, but it's totally enclosed. And I have a cat, which is why I have it totally enclosed. Um, anyway, so the, uh, but uh, it, it works exceptionally well. <laughs> so, so that's, uh, and they make a small one for $279. Go ahead, Courtney. I don't know if there is a small one enclosed. It's Cheaty, by it the is. way. They, they have a, Cheaty? Is it Cheaty? Mm -hmm. Cheaty, okay. There we go. It's pretty Cheaty. The, yeah, yeah the, uh, <laughs> it, it is a, it is a, uh yeah the small one isn't there's a there's one called an X Smart 3 that is um uh that is it's a 175 180 170 um enclosure and they make uh the the Creality K1 is enclosed and it has a uh vent fan on the back uh you may have to modify it a little bit to get to have have it read the temperature control of the cab inside the cabinet and the the fan that's on the back of it uh exhaust fan that's on the back of it you could put a hose around it and vent it out a window or something if you're printing uh some smelly type of abs or something but um uh that does have an exhaust fan in it that controls the temperature inside the cabinet uh the k1s and they're they've come down in price now i think they were on sale for uh under 500 dollars uh, over black friday I was really, I was just the Cheaty uh, Max Three. I couldn't believe is now nine nine hundred dollars, which is about the size of the one that I have now. Mine's many years old now, um, but that's twelve inches by tw or almost thirteen inches by thirteen inches by twelve and a half inches. So they're definitely getting to. And I will say the interface looks way better than the one that I have. So um, you know, I, I do think that there's there's uh, Anchor makes some as well that are that are there. I I think that for most three D printers, I find that the user interface is horrible. You know, like you know, so, so, and and I I feel like that's a I I think that um, a lot of folks, uh, folks that kind of come from an engineering background that then make products tend to ignore the user interface and they tend to pay a price for it when someone else comes out with something that isn't as good but has a better user interface. Um, they oftentimes lose to that person because they're they're not paying attention to it. Go ahead, Bill. Vic, if you're looking for something, I just noticed I was looking at that picture and I realized they have a new model out that does both. Uh, airflow and humidity control. Oh, that's so a, once. Oh, oh, that's the duct. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking okay. to myself, maybe if this adds humidity, that may be something that'll mm. keep this from being a significant problem in terms of ink dry out. Mm. Uh, so we're. I think the venting is mostly just so you don't smell it. But yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany, asked, "What is the best way to show a 3D picture created via photogrammetry on a website?" Which file format is the best to use? It should be rotatable by the viewer. Good guy. 
depends on how you're acquiring. Um, there's uh, export options like uh, to Sketchfab, and there's different ways of being able to send if the other user has an Apple device, being able to pop it right in through a text. Um, I'm using the Polycam app, which uh, I just got on Black Friday sale for the year and scanned the Cybertruck that was in our local mall. Uh, which was pretty cool. And this is just published to the Polycam site. So after you uh, after you do a scan, you can just publish it and then send that link to a client. And then that way they can go in and they can, you know, zoom in and and uh, take measurements and all that stuff. But and then other users can actually download uh, download the file and uh, and see all the points and everything like that. So uh, that's how I would do it is Polycam. Yeah, as far as creating it, I think this is a, a, the display of it, um, you know, and I think that that's a little harder. Uh, I would look at, I, I actually, um, you know, one of the ones that a lot of people use is Sketchfab, and I don't know whether they send them to that or whether there's a way to embed that, but Sketchfab has a lot of different tools that are related to that. I would also look at the Smithsonian. Um, the Smithsonian has a large collection of 3D models, and look if they if they talk about the viewer. I didn't quite get to this um, fast enough this morning to to, to look at, at their at their build there. I have to admit that I deliver stuff in USDZ. So when we put stuff on people's website, if you go to like clarity.io, um, you'll see a, a little, if you go to the, I think it's called the node, node, um, and you'll see a USDZ file. And, and Chris Fritchie in our group uh, built that. <laughs> so so anyway, so he, so that's up there and you can down, and the cool thing about the USDZ is, again, if the person has, uh, if the person has a, um, uh, an Apple device, it will literally show up to scale on their desk, which is kind of cool. So it does. It's not as it's not as cross platform supported, uh, but it is super cool for the folks that have it. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking: What is the MoQ Media Over QUIC streaming? Is this a low latency HLS? You know, I, I'm actually not not that familiar with that um, that format, and I would say that I'm not a big proponent for uh this low latency hls like i just i have to admit that i you know i'm just going to kind of ping on that a little bit once it's over a half a second i don't care like i just don't care how long it takes to get there i just want it to be stable so as we lower the latency what you're doing is you're taking away the buffer and you're making the buffer not not available i mean if, if you can't interact who cares? Like, you know, like, so, so the thing is, is I, and I, I know that I, f I sound very old fashioned when I say that, but I, I do a lot of this. And yesterday I was measuring, you know, latency across the country. And I, uh, you know, I, I, as soon as it gets to about 500 milliseconds of, of latency, I don't know why it matters whether it's two seconds or three seconds or five seconds. It just doesn't like it. And, and what you're doing is you're taking away the stability of the of the product and people's home connections just aren't very good. So you test it in the lab and you go, oh, on my one gig down 50 up, um, you know, connection, it works great, you know, when I'm wired. But what happens when the person's watching on their phone? So people build these pipelines and I just find that they you know, they, they stall a lot. They build up a lot. You know, the thing is, there's a reason that, that YouTube has a big buffer. It's not because it, it takes that long to get it to you, but it takes that long to make sure that you're not, you, that you're going to get a smooth viewing experience throughout the entire thing, which I think is far more important than um, whether you get it in, in one and a half seconds versus five seconds. You know, like it's just, and, and so I'm not, I, I know, I just find in this, in our industry right now, people are super obsessed with this, like, we're going to get HLS down or we're going to get things down to a second and a half. I'm like, sure. If you can get it under 500 milliseconds, you have my undivided attention. If it's over 500 milliseconds, let's just take the time to make sure that it's actually good. Yeah, go ahead, Guy. 
Yeah, I did a little uh, digging in before the show because I saw this question pop up, and it just really makes me start thinking as as you uh, dig into. I'll put a link in the in the chat the article that I was reading how deep this goes and the challenges that uh, folks like Google Meet and um, Zoom have been trying to solve. So it's like, what is our next level even for this show? If we wanted to stay in this low latency world, how can Zoom help us? You know, get to that. Um, you know, 10 megabit, you know, like 422 or like if we want better color, better resolution, will they get to 4K? So what is right. that next codec? And this, I think, is that path. They're beating down that path. No. And I'm not trying to. His- <laughs> I'm not trying to. Like, to me, to me, the, the next the next generation is a dual pipeline. So we're going to, you know, that's what we're going to start experimenting with here, which is we talk in Zoom, but we send SRT at a very at a much higher quality um, stream that is slower. So we do, you know, and there's some challenges there. We, I know that there are challenges, but I think that's a much better solution. Trying to deliver to each other, like we can have this conversation at 640 by 360. <laughs> you know, like, you know, so, and I'd rather turn that latency all the way down so that we can just, you know, it, or 1080p, but have it be a little choppy or whatever as we talk about it. And then, and then be able to send an SRT that is five seconds behind or 10 seconds behind. I don't really care. And, and send it to somewhere where it's going to be 4K, 10 bit, you know, uh, you know, log <laughs> or whatever we want to send it. We send that out to the, to the other side of that. That is going to produce the best looking talking head show ever made. Like that, that is so that technology, it's logistics for us. But all the technologies sit there available to us right now, trying to deliver in real time that high quality. I do that. So I was I sent a 270 megabit stream round trip yesterday across the country for um, round trip. I mean, so each each leg was under 200 milliseconds. You know, like so. You know, like so. That's you know, so so it's for less than. I mean, less than that. I'm just being. I can't say the numbers exactly, but. Each each leg was exact, uh, under two hundred, and that's across the country, um, and that is really expensive. <laughs> you know, like like that's private fiber. I'm using the switch for that, and and so it's possible to do that. It is not possible, in my opinion, to do that over the public internet. Like to do it stably over the public internet, there's just so much trash that you're you know you're driving through a bunch of roads and you're weaving through all the trash and the burning fires and you know crazy people all the way from one side to the other, as opposed to I have a big highway that nobody's allowed on, <laughs> you know, like, and, 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 you know, and I can go as fast as I want. So, so it's just, I don't think that it's, it is possible to have the quality that we want at the, at the latency that we need. Um, and so, you know, my view of this is to have two, two pipelines out of a, out of somewhere to, to make that happen. And I think that we definitely can get there. I just think that that's what we're, but that's what we're foc- we're talking a lot about next year. Yeah, go ahead, guy. Yeah, I'm ready when you are to go We're working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Piece of hardware. So I already have the uh, the encoder. Uh, if we put a decoder over at John Wallace's place, mm. which he already has an Osprey Talon 4K SC going out, but now he needs one going in. I have a 4K camera HDMI coming out right. of this feed, which can... Uh, you know, pop over there in, in pretty yeah, and quick timing, but it, it is hardware. So it's, you know, two grand and two grand. So you're, you're getting up to four grand per panelist. It's hardware right now. So we're thinking pretty hard about it. <laughs> so, so like, so I, I don't, it doesn't need to be hardware. So, uh, so anyway, so we'll, we'll, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of discussion about how that, uh, how that works. Probably not stuff I'm ready to talk about on the show just yet, but, it, but the, um, uh, but, but we're, thinking really hard about what that dual pipeline would need to look like. You can do it over software. So you could have a camera 
coming into a computer and that software there can be saying, I'm going to send you a low latency and we could be joining Zoom or whatever, but the software on your heart, on your computer could be getting the same feed and sending it out via SRT. So you wouldn't need a box to do the SRT. You could do the SRT from your Mac or PC that, you know, Larix will do that, right? So, so the, um, so there's, there's ways to, to dual pipeline that right now. Um, and so we're, you know, we're, just trying to get everything working from the, from the move, still, still, you know, still tired from the move. But, but the, um, but I think that we're going to be working on that in the next, in the first couple of months. And I do think that's our next generation of the highest quality. That's how we get to the true highest quality. And there's a whole bunch of problems for the, for the, ho- for the panelists. So that, cause you know, do, we don't all have 4k cameras. We don't all have 4k capture devices. We don't all. So we're not, we're just baby steps you know, down that, down that path to figure out. And, and it may be something that we do for special events before we do it for the regular panel so that anybody can join the regular panel, but we might do a, like a WWC coverage or we do something else and we just turn the whole, all the dials up to, to play with it for the folks that are there. So, so stay tuned for more of that, but we're definitely thinking really hard about that. But I do not think delivering the kind of quality that we're looking for is possible on the open internet. Like I just I don't I don't I think that that there's a bunch of physics problems there that are going to be almost impossible, you know, because the the delay between us matters. Like that's the other thing is people who are technology driven, who only care about like, oh, it's low latency or whatever. You know, when people talk to me about, oh, we can do conversations over SRT. I'm like, okay, well, you're at 500 milliseconds. And that is an eternity. Like to me, that is like a that does not create a great show, Um, you know. And so so I I don't like I, I, I think that. We really want to be moving our latency down to to live below 200 milliseconds, you know, each way minimum, and then we want to figure out a way to get higher quality. And I don't think you can do both in the same pipe over the open internet. You can definitely do it over private fiber. Um, next question: T.J. Asher from Minneapolis, Minnesota, has a question. Sony PlayStation is pulling discovery content from folks who purchased the content at the end of the year because Warner Discovery is yanking the shows. Will this breathe life into the physical media or will folks start sailing the seven seas again? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Louis Rosman just released a video on this because he is a major upset about this happening. It says it's driving him back to piracy and this and a Netflix uh, uh, 4K issue where you have to have certain hardware. Even if you pay for 4K download, if you don't have certain hardware, you can't view 4K uh, for net, Netflix streams. And he talked about the Sony PlayStation pulling the rights to this. If you've, uh, I guess it, it, you serve the, a lot of this stuff is hosted uh, since it's streaming. And if you put it in your library, it's not really downloaded into your PlayStation. It's probably stored on a server somewhere. You just have access to it. And if uh, if Warner Discovery is or, you know changing the access to the servers that you know host these programs, then Warner Discovery then access to it is going to be removed. So you lose the price. You lose the ability to see it, even though you paid for it to be in your library. So. They may have to do something to fix this. I don't know how they're going to fix it since uh, Warner Discovery is going through a lot of trials and tribulations right now, and they may not be willing to put any effort into having to fix this or having uh, to get you to some way download it into your local library if they show that you've paid for it. Yeah, and they, the problem is they technically don't have to. Your license, you know, in that terms of service, they they pro- they hold the right to take the stuff away and everything else. And you know, I think that in general, um, 
you know, this is the problem. I don't think it's going to push a big, I think people are past, I think this is what they're betting on too. People are kind of past physical media. Like there are some people that are going to hang on to it and buy it, but by and large, 99% of the population now is not really, don't really have the capability of looking at at hardware, <laughs> like, like, like actual media. I will say that, you know, for the things that you really care about, if there's something you want to watch over and over again, I mean, games are a little harder. Um, for things you care about, just remember that Less, less expensive Chinese HDMI to H, uh, SDI converters like AVU and others have a bug, quote unquote a bug, that doesn't pass the <laughs> HTCP through. And you can record that stuff and keep it there if you, if you really want to. Um, but um, I, don't know if any, I don't know if there's a lot of 4K ones that do it, but there's definitely a lot of 1080Ps. Those have been around for a long time. Um, go ahead, Mitchell. This might also be the tip of the iceberg because with all this consolidation and shifting back and forth that's being done, um, things are going to get more complicated um, as we move forward. So I think uh, Warner Discovery is just a uh, uh, tip of the iceberg of what uh, could be happening in rights and how they get uh, distributed. I lost my headset. I can't hear you guys. Anyway, um, uh, the uh, let's go to the next question. Next question is up from Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany. What application does support the showing of USDZ files on a Windows computer? I'm asking for a friend and I'm looking for free viewer software, not AutoCAD or Blender. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I think it depends on your version of Windows. Windows 10 had it built in, they call it 3D Viewer, and I think it'll do uh, 3D uh, USDZ files. This is what it looks like. It's uh, You can download it. It's in the Windows Store if you have Windows 11, and it doesn't. Just search for 3D Viewer. It's probably on your machine already. Look, you can look down inside. Well, wait, where to go? Oh, look, you can look down inside a, tra- a uh, dinosaur while it's walking. It, it supports uh, animated and 3D uh, models of a variety of types. It has a lot of uh, a library of online models you can use. And it also, there's a 3D paint as well that goes with that package that lets you paint and 3D uh, objects and images. So look for that. It's free. It's on the Windows, on the uh, Windows Store. Microsoft Next question. Store. And it's from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington, also here on our panel. What are some tips for directing a TD graphics playout and cam ops via comms? Good, Bill. This is one of the most complicated things you will ever try to do. And I think, honestly, the only way you can learn this is to just do it. Uh, You know, getting four or five or 10 or 20 human beings on a comms network, the director, the technical director, the team, the show caller. I mean, we've had examples on the show where we've pointed people to things like there's Super Bowl backstage videos on YouTube that let you hear the calling of a massive show. And you can see that it is an incredibly precise ballet a lot of rehearsal everybody knows everybody what they're supposed to do the the camera moves are all but the keeping in the moment and i remember listening to one of the big ones uh the woman calling the show was just as calm as can be she was precise there is a rhythm to things i mean it's really kind of like this giant mind meld of all these professionals working together and the only way you're ever going to get that is to just do it over and over again. I am encouraged because I was in the first generation, I think, I was able to do two and three camera shoots when I was in my mid-30s that we kind of cobbled together for like local music performances and we rented a ClearCom system and I was able to practice and make lots of mistakes. I'm still just woeful at it. I'm not really good because to be really good, you have to do this all the time. It is a specific and brilliantly important skill in my thing. And it makes the difference between a good show and a great show. Yeah. And I would, I would listen 
as Bill said, there are things, there are examples on the internet of people and YouTube of people calling shows. Listen to that. Take advantage of that, what that process looks like. Do not make things up. Like, do not think that you're going to do some new way of calling cameras because you won't fit in anywhere. <laughs> like, you know, so you don't, you're going to build muscle memory. If you're doing shows over and over and over again, you say, ready camera three, camera three, ready camera four, camera four. Do not start making up different ways of calling the show. You know, listen to how people have been doing this for a very long time. And if you start coming up with a new nomenclature on how you want to call the we hear this every once in a while. We get a, we'll get a director that hasn't done very much of it. Usually they're kind of in, they're a client who wants to do it themselves or whatever, and they start talking about it. And you're just like, nobody understands what you're talking about. Like the camera operators don't understand. No one understands. This is a pipeline. And you're getting people who are freelancers that are coming in and you need to do it a certain way. And so the best thing to do is to listen to, you know, again, these big football. The the thing you want to listen to if you can is live American football. It is the hardest thing. It's one of the hardest things to call. It is very, very, very high quality. Um, these are, you know, they're spending an incredible amount of money per show to do this. They have a huge team to make this happen. And when you listen to that, that is the, in my opinion, after I've sat on comms listening to lots and lots and lots of things, that is the the highest order of live calling <laughs> that I've seen. There's lots of other things like Eurovision and other things that are, that are very, very fast paced or a, or someone reading a list. I'm not talking about, like, there's things you'll see on, from live performances like a Christmas special or something like that. But someone's just reading cues at that point. You know, they're not, they're not like what I'm talking about is having to dance with what's going on and calling a show is really hard. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's an incredible thing. So if you can listen to some of that, but the best thing to do then is you want to be a camera operator. So if you want to learn how to do it, you want to be a camera operator, you're going to hear it. Well, be an assistant, just get on the, get on the floor, you know, and make sure that you can be around it, get on cam, you know, calm somewhere. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, get to be a camera operator, then get to be a TD at some point after you've camera opt for a while, but you know, and then you'll get to be a director somewhere in the future. And sometimes you'll be a TD who's calling shows for little shows. And now admittedly for pixel core, we would put, you know, we had small events and, I would take guys that have been camera operators for a little while and go, okay, you're going to TD this show. There's like three cameras and there's almost nothing happening. And But they'd heard a bunch of the shows. They'd been on the comms for a while. And so they would take on these little shows to do them. Um, and then they'd slowly build up from there. But but I think that most of the people that we put on any major show probably had had uh, 10 years. Like they had, they'd been in production for 10 years, like before they started calling shows. So like big, sh- like shows that mattered. <laughs> like, you know, like so, so, you know, like that, just so you know, like it takes, it just takes time. You know, because and also you do have to get to a point where you're not raising your voice every time. You're not freaking out every time or or telling someone because, you know, if you're calling the show, um, you know, I, I think I said this before, but one time I asked NASA why they were so calm and they were like, well, we find that, you know, raising our voice over comms does not improve survivability. <laughs> so, so it was just, you know, so you want to think about that for your show. Uh, go ahead, guy. Yeah, uh, yesterday we had Jeff Keefley on and I had the pleasure of working hit with him and uh, Noah Sargent on a show last week. And to hear Jeff call a show uh, over comms was just masterful. So I was kind of throwing the ball to him and this question got pushed back because we ran out of time. But yeah, I was a camera op for years and would listen to a variety of different TDs and how they they ran the shows. And there was a nice soft cadence, but um, I wish that there was more people that would take the time like our, our own Garrick Parmalee, who used to be on the show a lot, does his church uh, comms and show calling. It's where he puts like a 
GoPro in, in the booth. And uh, he's really good for just a, a guy that's covering his local church. I mean, you get different, uh, you know, levels of folks that are doing this, at, you know, the highest end. And I've been fortunate enough to hear some of the the, the highest level that Alex was just talking about. I've, I've been uh, blessed to go on some of these uh uh, in these trucks. And so I get, I've heard it at the highest level. It's just, where can we learn more? Because there's only so much YouTube. I, I wish more people would say, this is for education purposes. Let's go ahead and put this on. Yeah. Because, yeah, there are some nasty things that are said over comms if you get the wrong crew. <laughs> so a you lot know, of people are, don't want to put comms on, on YouTube, but uh, there is the, definitely some learning to, to be exposed. Yeah. The best training that we did for this was we did some, we had some concerts that we did at the, at the stage that we had. I don't know if you, Guy, if you saw any of those I did concerts. with Marcia, Marcia. Marcia, yeah, Marcia. <laughs> like, and listening to her talk to people who actually didn't have a lot of camera experience. I mean, there were people who had been there, been using the camera for as long as the show had existed. I mean, it had turned on and listening to her kind of talk the cameras in and call the cameras and everything else, I thought was a pretty great experience as far as just really understanding what it would take to call a concert, right? You know, like, and, and, and what that looks like. She's got thousands of concerts under her belt and we put it on Zoom so you can just listen to it. Um, one of the goals that we have for next year is to do that at a, at a larger scale where we're going to do a show. And then if we deliver all the ISOs to Zoom, we can, you could take Zoom ISO and pull all the cameras back down and cut along with us. Like so you can listen to her call a show while you're, you know, TDing. And that's probably the fastest way for you to learn how to do it. Because you'd listen, you'd be able to hear her talking to the cameras, but you can follow along and cut cut to those things. That would just be a great service to the community. I mean, especially if we yeah. can get a little GoPro in the in the booth as well to actually show her and what she's well, doing. She, and what she, the funny thing is for, for a bunch of those, we had gotten to a point where she was literally in, um, uh, she's at home in, in the middle of the country and calling the show and, and either Chris Fenwick or I or someone else was actually cutting the show to her call. But but we she wasn't even she's just watching it over Zoom calling the show, which I think is a pretty cool thing. You know, anyway, so we're working on it. I mean, that's what we're we're working on, you know, a, a venue that we can do that in and, and make that work. And so so stay tuned. But that's something that we're really looking at hard for next year. Uh, next question. Ready to take three. Uh, next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman on the move. With Filmic at the end of life, does the Blackmagic iOS app give us a solution for a clean HDMI output for folks who are using the phone in a live workflow, like conversations with Tony Mobley? The answer is yes. I, I, the reason I was distracted earlier is I was trying to find a cable. I think I packed them all for my test yesterday, trying to find a cable to show it to you. But yes, you get a clean feed out of You can set it to be clean feed out of the phone. So, um, so you can absolutely get a clean feed from the Blackmagic camera. And you have more control than you had with Filmic um, with that with that feed that goes out. So uh, the answer is yes. Next question. QR code coming from Roscoe Jones over in Key Largo, Florida. Hollywood has had a problem with the crew falling asleep when driving home from a location shoot after a director chooses to go too long. How do we protect ourselves and others? Go to Courtney. Well, and the union has dealt with has been trying to get this taken care of for years. They've been trying to get rules to say 12 on 12 off. Uh, Haskell Wexer was strove hard to get this passed through all the uh, unions, uh, but it still goes on because, you know, they they have schedules to fill and they figure, you know, they pay uh, by the days. The problem is when they budget something, 
the uh, scheduled number of days of production. And if they go a day over, it works against the producers. So if they can make the days 16 hours long, it still only counts as a day, even though it's a day and a half, basically. So what happens is they end up working 16 hours, and then this throws you into creeping call times, where your call time gets later every single day on a multi-day shoot. And so that by Friday, you're having a 5 p.m. call and you're working into, you know, the middle of Saturday halfway. And so you're losing your Saturday because you have to sleep. So what they've done as a concession, the unions have put in there that uh, if you're working past uh, 12 hours and you're in a distant location, they have to, or even if you're in a local location, if you're out on location, not at the studio, they have to offer you... uh, a local hotel where you can spend the night and so that you don't have to get up and drive back to the distant location in the morning with a short turnaround. Uh, so that's the only solution they have uh, right now is to offer you uh, a stay overnight. And they have the latest contracts and coming up on a new contract next year, we're going to try and get that negotiated in as to uh, longer turnaround times to keep them from going into it. Ahead, but Mitchell. just just making a a a penalty of uh, making them pay more for those extra hours isn't a solution because they'll just pay more and work them because it keeps shorter days. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, this isn't theoretical. This has happened, and people have been injured uh, in these circumstances. The union's doing the best it can, like Courtney just said, but it doesn't necessarily cover independents or people that are doing uh, guerrilla uh, filming out there. Um, it's dangerous. And I think it's going to take a few lawsuits to get everybody uh, to wake up and take notice. Good, Bill. Yeah, I think it's very important to pay attention to that. I, I have been in this state of creativity where I'm on a location and we're shooting and I can see things developing and I can see if I can just move everybody over 10 feet, even though I'm going to have to break and take longer and we set up in the first place. And, we, and so there's this constant tension between artistically getting something done right or as well as you can and all the other ancillary pieces, including crew safety and the rest of that, I'm not forgiving any of it for one second. And these people who say, yeah, my vision is to have you walking on the train tracks, and the next thing you know, somebody is killed by a train because they weren't paying attention. There's absolutely zero excuse for that, ever. But I understand the moment you see that shot and you're going, could I get that? Could I do it? And then sometimes your brain can't go in both places. You can either get this piece of art or you can let it go and protect everything else. And it's just I think there's always going to be some constant tension there in the creative arts between what we do when we're by ourselves, which is just work, 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 work to get the exact right thing and this necessity, this critical necessity to pay attention to everything else around you in the moment of that wanting to get it just right. So it's hard. Yeah, I know. As a producer, I think that I've grown over time because I was kind of no, notorious for really long, hard days. Never 16 hours, though. I mean, I never went that that long. Um, but but 12-hour days and grueling, you know, productions and everything else. And I just learned that my I didn't produce as good at work. You know, like it was just, you know, people made mistakes. There were a lot of, we lost a lot of time. We lost a lot of other things. And I learned to kind of slow it down. And, you know, like I think that uh, Clint Eastwood does eight-hour days. Like he just does, you know, like that. When he shoots his movies, they're like eight-hour days. <laughs> and he's just like, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to do eight hours. And he and he, he just says it's, it's about the crew being alert and awake and managed and, and, you know, engaged. And he, and he believes that he does a, 
they do better work that way, which I tend to agree with. So um, as a producer, when I'm protecting my team, and I have to do it almost every show, of like, hey, we can't load in here, we can't do this, we can't do that, we have to do this. It's because I know that I'll get better work out of it. It's, it's not just taking care of their, their well-being. It's knowing that they're going to do a better job. Like if we're not, if they're not, um, you know, uh, you know, totally uh, out of steam, you want to have a lot of gas in the tank, so to speak. Uh, Alex Golner's here, and we're going to be talking about motion here in just a second. Um, but a c- couple quick things. Uh, we're going to talk about recording the podcast. I'm going to show you kind of where we are with the Michael Krasny show, the gray matter dot show is what I'm doing and what's working, what's not working, what we're working through. And uh, we'll have that discussion tomorrow um, uh, for Wednesday. On um, Thursday, we're, t- we're going to be talking about the black magic camera app. So we're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, where, what we know so far. We talked a little bit about it when it came out, but we're going to be talking about it a little bit more on Thursday. We're going to talk about streaming to multiple locations locations on Friday. Um, so if you, you ought, a lot of times it needs to go to more, more than one place. We'll be talking about that. And then Saturday, of course, is a Q&A where we do a lot of R&D and a lot of people um, are training and getting better. And uh, Sunday, of course, is introspection. And now uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right into the second hour. Welcome back back to the second hour, and uh, and I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about lower thirds in motion. We have Alex Golner here. Um, Alex Alex is the person that I look up to when I think about com- computer graphics and and how to do a lot of these uh, 2D animations and so on and so forth. And you know, I think Alex and I, the two Alexes, <laughs> have have uh, I think we've both used motion since probably version one. Um, you know, and I know I have, and it's you know definitely one of my. Um, um, one of my loved apps that I work on, and I feel like it doesn't get enough uh, doesn't get enough um, uh, 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 screen time as far as talking about the, the really the stuff it can do. And Alex is probably the one of the one or two people that I literally it's Alex and Mark uh, Mark Spencer are the two people that if I'm trying to figure something out in motion or if I need something done in motion that's going to work, I'm going to call uh, you know uh, generally get Alex to to jump on and, and work on stuff. And I've done a bunch of work with Alex um, on comp- uh, you know doing 2D animations, and so. So we're going to do a couple of weeks in a row where we talk a little bit about animating emotions so you can see what's possible. Uh, welcome to the show, Alex. Good afternoon. Good morning. And uh, good day to you all. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about lower thirds today, right? Yes. I mean, I, I think we were thinking that it's a good idea if we just share getting people comfortable in motion. It's yeah. making it not a scary place. So what we actually do in motion will be useful, but much yeah. more of the fact that it's no big deal. It's initially looks like a strange place, but if we start pointing out what parts so you don't hardly ever need to use or you don't need to look at yet, makes it a lot more kind of chilled out and well, relaxed place. And I think the biggest, the, the biggest challenge is when I came from After Effects, so I spent, you know, a decade in After Effects before I opened up Motion. And I think that really the, the uh, and I still use After Effects for a handful of things, um, but for the most part, my daily driver when it comes to, oh, I got to throw together some graphics is Motion. Um, and I think that it's just a matter of learning uh, how to kind of just, it's, it's not, I think when someone starts brand new, Motion's not a big deal. When you come from, you know, After Effects, it, it becomes a little bit more complicated. But and if those of you who don't know Motion, the main thing to know is that this is a $50 application, not $50 a month, not $50 every upgrade, but you will pay $50 once and be able to do all the things that we're talking about today. 
Yes, I mean, I used to get it used to come in Final Cut Studio, Final Cut Studio Two. Uh, so initially, it was a it was a good amount of cash. It was um, eight hundred dollars or seven hundred dollars initially. Back For, in I forgot that it was so expensive that you had to yeah. spend lots of money on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then you did get a benefit of spending, you know, $249, $349 for the update for the whole of Final Cut Studio. And then a new version of Motion came along with that. But, right. Uh, no, it's amazing value now. And partially one of the problems people might have with it is, is they may not take it too seriously if it costs right. less than a plugin. So if it costs less than, say, Element 3D or something like that, be well, what can it be? But it's yeah. underneath all that, I would describe it as... I don't know, two thirds of the features of After Effects. Um, but you could say, but it's the 100% of all the features that most people use in After Effects. <laughs> well, not only that, I mean, it, it is, you know, we did, um, I'll, I'll, we'll probably show this in a future episode. Um, now, I've done lots of visual effects shots with After Effects, but we did a film, uh, a, a, a Japanese film, maybe 15 years ago, and I was talking to Kevin about it. I was like, did we do all the shots in motion? Because there was two, over 200 visual effects shots. And he's like, yeah, we did. I said, all of them? And he's like, yeah, we did them all. <laughs> we did them all in motion. And the, and the reason for that was the, in 2008 and even now, the real-time engine inside of motion is so powerful that we were able to do, we, did, we had about 105 of those 200 and, and, and some shot, 208 or 204 or something like that, visual effects shots. A whole slew of them were car shots, you know, with green screen. And we were able to loop it. So we're just watching a live loop while we're making adjustments to it. And that was a really, you know, that was what saved us. I mean, we didn't, you know, there was no way for us to, we would have never been able to produce the shots in any other app, application. So it is a very powerful application. That was a full film release. I mean, that's not like a, you know, that wasn't, uh, um, you know, like a, a small project. So so anyway, so it, it, it really does have, uh, uh, it has the capability of doing a lot of really high-end work. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is that obviously back in um, 1991, 92, uh, Moore's Law meant that you didn't have to worry about the future of technology when designing video editing apps, motion graphic or motion graphics apps. So when After Effects was coming along, they just kind of knew, well, we've had the 286, we've had the 386, the Pentium's just come out, there's going to be more. We don't have to worry about the fact that there's resolution it needs to increase and frame rate needs to increase and more complicated, uh, higher data rates. We're going to be okay as uh, CPU power gets more powerful. But around 90, 2002, 2003, the CPUs started slowing down and they weren't increasing as fast. And essentially, if we do look at motion, you can see it's like the vision of one or two crazy people because it's just like, okay, we'll do good to do everything in the GPU. And obviously GPU, living in the GPU and being real time was not really a priority for After Effects and Premiere and NLEs in those days because they just thought that the CPUs were going to kind of carry the day. But GPUs was the future, or as they say these days, the Mandalorian, they are the way. And they certainly are the way when it comes to things like other, obviously, to do with AI and ML and things like that. So uh, essentially, Apple bet on a different future of graphics. And at the core of Final Cut Pro is that motion engine, is the compositing engine, it is a real-time app. So, and I think that's important is to understand if you're using Final Cut that Motion is able to deliver, and this is what we're going to show a little bit today, is able the the, the graphics engine that sits inside of Final Cut is the is the same graphics engine that sits inside of Motion, so that Motion is able to deliver um, um, a lot of different assets uh, to Final Cut, and then those play back in Final Cut. Yes. So the thing is that we. Um, I think when Apple were casting around for re-engineering um, 
Final Cut Pro because they had to re-engineer it because it was essentially a demonstration of what the old QuickTime was, QuickTime, the playback system. And um, that was relatively old. It was already coming up for 18, 19 years old back in 2009. So they needed something else. So Final Cut Pro 10 is actually a demo of AV Foundation, the thing that replaced the QuickTime quick playback system. So inside Motion, there it is already. It's real time and it's all in the GPU. And that's how we're going to be playing back video anyway. And ProRes on QuickTime played by AV Foundation and Final Cut Pro being the demo app. And that's why it appears in lots of promotion stuff to do with uh, Apple hardware and operating systems. So, yeah, it's a real time. But what is real time app? Why is that a good thing? Because ideally, once you get comfortable, and this is not on the first day, once you get comfortable, you realize you're playing you're playing it and just trying things out and having a go. Whereas to some extent in other applications, you are coming up with ideas, but then you have to be a technical operator for a minute or so, or 30 seconds when you do some track, uh, you, you target some tracks or you set up some parameters or you do a bit of scripting in After Effects and you connect things together because you have a, an idea, but then you have to go through a technical process to get back to the bit where you're playing again. But in motion, Sometimes if you try stuff, it kind of generally works. And as long as it's looping and playing and you keep on going, then it's like, oh, that seemed to work. I well, think I'll try this. You know, we, so it's the often, play part of creativity. We often talk about in visual effects, you know, you never finish a shot. You just run out of time. And there are two aspects, the two biggest aspects of motion. Because you can knock out a lot of things in a lot of I, – I, I saw there was a, a Matt Painter named Yusei Weski in um, – in, uh, at ILM, and he could 3D model with cyber, the, there was a cyber, can't think of the name of the exporter, but it would take a depth map and wrap it around out of Photoshop and you could export models. You say would model things <laughs> in Photoshop, like you can do anything you want from any, from any app. The, the, the issue is, is that A, uh, can you see the difference between good and bad? As an artist, can you make a, deci- make a decision? And B, how many times do you get to see it? Like, so, so can you see it and how many times do you get to see it are two of the problem. That's probably 80% of the problem. The technology is 20% of the problem. And so when you're able to loop something or see something really quickly, if you're not hitting render and then walking away and coming back, um, you know, over and over and over again, your ability to get to a better product, if you can see the difference, is greatly increased. So, yeah, I mean, I um, so I suppose maybe what we should do is go into um, motion and I'll set up what a, its relationship maybe with Final Cut in terms of making a lower third. Yeah. And then we can make it more complex or leave it at that or answer yeah. people's questions if you like. Sounds good. We'll, what we'll do is we'll do a little bit of it for a couple minutes and then we'll come back and answer some of your questions. And so keep those questions rolling in as you see us uh, working through that and, uh, and then we'll jump into them a couple times. Uh, go ahead, Alex. So I'm going to share my screen and I'm going to start off in Final Cut Pro. So here we are in Final Cut Pro. I've got a piece of footage here um, of some of a lady making uh, pasta in uh, Italy. And they, she's making orecchiata, which means she's using in slow motion. You can see the detail of her using her fingers to get this specific shape. But in real time, it looks like this. Oh, of course, I slowed it down when I filmed it. But anyway, you get some idea. So we would like to add a lower third to this. So Final Cut Pro, just some footage. So what I'm going to do uh, is going to switch over to motion. I don't have anything open in motion yet. So the only thing that's changed up here is the menu bar. So I'm going to go to choose file, new, 
And what you can do in Motion is you can create different kinds of Final Cut Pro elements. You can create effects that can use to add effects to clips, content such as graphics and elements such as maps and circles and animations, even transitions between clips. Um, so you can animate clips on and off or make them dissolve, do anything you like. But in this case, we're making a Final Cut title. So these are the different kinds of projects. And the motion project is a straightforward, what you would call a project to create animations or compositions um, and the kind of thing you would be using in motion to export your graphics directly from motion uh, as QuickTime movies. The kind of stuff you'd do as a video to play back at an event or something like that if you had some animation that you created and then you would put it back into your playout, playout server or something like that. But we're going to create a Final Cut title. So I'm going to choose a preset um, in terms of, if I choose this preset, it tells me the resolution of 1920 by 1080. Um, I could actually choose uh, 4K, but um, motion is mostly, is actually completely resolution independent. So this actually doesn't particularly matter unless you're copying on, uh, font point sizes from 4K timelines or uh, UHD timelines. But you can choose your frame rate and your duration. Now, as I'm from the UK and I do stuff in Europe, I'm going to choose for now 25 frames a second. But you should know that in Final Cut Pro, if I had a different different kind of timeline, I mean, here I actually have 30 frames a second footage because it comes from my iPhone. Um, it doesn't matter. I don't have to worry about frame rate when creating these uh, titles. It all, it's all handled. Effectively, I think in terms in motion, in terms of seconds, but... Um, if I'm dividing something into parts, then I will think in terms of frames per second. So I choose the preset, although I can choose custom here if I want, and frame rate of 25 frames a second, and it's like six seconds. I'm gonna say six seconds. I might even make it something slightly less than that because maybe for a lower third, we might want it to be something like four seconds long. So I, ah, I press return, I should have clicked okay. So then what we have here is a uh, the motion user interface. So it looks rather complicated initially. I don't use necessarily this library, but I do recommend it because there are lots of things here that will actually are very quick amounts of simple content that one has. Um, so I'm going to pick an example of, let's try replicators. And here's a, a replicator, in other words, something that creates lots of different um, patterns so you can see that it'll play back this is the kind of content that is designed to go below a lower third back in 2010 or 2011 it had its moment <laughs> yes so in 2011 this is pretty cool but i think we've moved on a little bit but the thing about this content is it isn't that you see animating up in the corner here. It isn't a load of bitmaps. These are elements in motion that do create these animations. So if you see these rectangles appearing here, with different. these are ways of actually you working out how to animate these things because you can open this up, put it on the timeline, and break it apart and see how it was animated. So that is just the replicators. In other words, taking a single shape or group of shapes and then making multiple copies of them and then making something move associated with it. But you also have things like particle emitters. So um, if I go to something like that. So this is the kind of thing, I know it's ridiculous that I'm showing all this stuff on a tiny screen in the corner, but what I'm really doing is just introducing to you to this library tab. But in general, 
you don't I don't have to use the library tab very much because I'd much rather do work with simple tapes, single bits of text and shapes, which I draw myself. So most of the time between on these two choices, we're on the inspector. And what this is, it just shows whatever you've got selected. It shows associated properties and other things. So at the moment, I have the project selected. If I go to properties, it tells me what the width and height of it is and other settings. But most of the time, if I'm honest, I don't. I hardly ever touch any of this either. So what I'm doing you, with you now in the user interface is saying what to look at and what not to worry about. So obviously you can see lots of settings here, but don't worry about them, is what I'm saying. <laughs> so usually I'm on the inspector. And then what we have here is where our animations are going to happen. And then we have our timeline. So I'm going to press play. And it tells me it's playing back perfectly well at 23, 25 frames a second. And the idea of these, the fact that if I'm doing playback is that if I go to behaviors, I can apply a behavior to something and then it immediately animates it. So what is a behavior? Well, a behavior is something that modifies a parameter usually over time. So I can choose, I usually choose this from up here, but if you like the library and you want to go to behaviors, you can see, go to a section such as basic motion, then you can see a preview of what happens. In this case, the cog fades in or fades out. Or quite a famous one for me is you make it so it grows or shrinks over time, like this. And the idea is grow shrink applies to a set parameter. So I'm going to, the question is, I could, if I drag this on here, I can make this text grow and shrink over time. So to be clearer, the strange thing is, even though people who use motion don't often use keyframes, sometimes it's really useful to see a keyframe graph to see the result of what you're doing. So my a good setup to get comfortable in motion is to get it playing and looping. But it's a good idea to make it a relatively short loop. So that's why I chose four seconds. So then I'm going to show the keyframe graph. Now we don't have much here because we're not selecting anything. So I'm going to change the position of pan, the ratio of these different panels this way. Just so you know, After Effects fans, you can't make these into separate windows or rearrange them. It's more about changing the proportion of these things, and turning them on and off. So you'll get used to the kind of Apple way of doing things or the, in terms of not having total control over your user interface. But let's say I have this grow shrink behavior and I just drag it and drop it onto type text here. Nothing seems to happen. I've got this value here. If I look down here, it says it's one, it's trying to, it's going to animate the scale X and Y, but nothing seems to happen because the default thing for this, beha this behavior is not to change anything, but to be ready to change something. So I'll show you what I mean by that. If I go to the inspector and I've got the grocery behavior selected, I can make it so I'm going to scale over time to 200%. Now, this is not necessarily what we want, but what I'm doing is showing you by the fact that immediately you can see the result of what you're doing 
here. And this is and this is less of a. I mean, one one thing you want to think about with that graphic is it's not so much a a keyframe uh, viewer, but a F curve viewer. So this is the function, and we call it F curves, um, the function of the position over time. Um, and so, so while there may not be any keyframes there, what they are is it is showing you what's going to what's actually happening to the positional data over over that period of time. So as you can see. This is real time to the extent that I can change the final scale of this, whatever object I drag this onto. So it's 50% of what it was. I can also change, as you can see here, the end of the offset. So I can make it so this actually happens more, more quickly. So this is just an example of just one behavior. But what is it really doing? So if I go to select the actual text itself, then I could see various properties associated with it. I could see the um, properties associated with this layer that I have selected or the object I have selected. And if I go to scale here, so I've got its position could be, could it be modified, its rotation, but I'm going to go to scale. And for some reason, this is very strange. I, oh, there you go. You can see the percentage slowly change. So you can see the result of these two parameters are being changed by this behavior. And you can see that it could be controlled by this little cog, which means being controlled by these behaviors. So I'm showing you the what this is about, and the reason I'm explaining it is the real-time nature of playing with this thing. But this is not actually, I must admit, the my, part of my design as a, of my lower third. It's just to explain elements of what you find in motion. And what a behavior is is something that modifies a parameter over time. And and uh, and we've got a couple of questions rolling in. So let's let's before you get into the actual uh, lower third design, let's go ahead and answer a couple of questions. Um, let's go to the first one. Okay, it's from Robert Sababody in Poland, and he asks: uh, Are there any standards for how long, how many times, an animation of lower thirds for different types of events? For example, corporate entertainment, closed group, etc. Alex, do you have any guidelines? Well, it really depends. Sometimes what you're, it's more a storytelling thing, strangely enough. So it really depends on your story. Sometimes you want to introduce someone, because um, I usually think in terms of video editing, but also video editing applies to how you tell the story of getting somebody into a show. And sometimes you, what you want is the what they say and who they seem to be to be the most important thing. So sometimes you won't even show a lower third until they've made their first point. And then to back it up, you put the lower third there. Or sometimes you have it there all the time because this is a very important person depending on the fact that we always are referring to it. And if you want to do a screen grab of it, this is who is saying it. And this is giving them an authorial voice across the whole time period of them speaking. So really, it's more about to what extent you want people to be distracted or not distracted or is there, anytime you add graphics or anything to a screen, you're thinking in terms of what is it doing and the service it's performing. So I, as a documentary maker, so I used to edit documentaries and sometimes still do, you do, some, you do want to introduce a person and have the lower third appear. And if you have, say, effectively a 40-minute documentary, then you probably want to, when they come back a couple more times, you want to put their lower third there again to remind people of who they are because 25 minutes later, they're forgotten. So I would say 20 minutes later, it's probably worth showing who they are again. Or if there's been too many people between one person and another, and the story is very complicated, and we've come back to the world of this person, then you put their lower third again. So 
It's more about getting into the mind state of the viewers as ever, which is kind of what we have to do. So the answer is not very long, as short as you can get away with, because they are distracting is another way of looking at it. Um, so that's why I put some, I put that kind of four or five second kind of duration. But the good thing is in the case of editing software, if you're putting it into editing software, you can change the duration in Final Cut Pro very easily. Um, and that's not a problem. But as regards for play out, it's more a kind of show caller decision. So it's really the show caller waiting for a beat and waiting for somebody to make their point. And then they would say they use switching to get it off. And that's what I'm used to in the UK or events that are done out of the UK. Um, it's a kind of, okay, we know who they are. Let's clear everything off the screen because we really want to go to a close up and go look into their eyes if we're following their emotions. Because it doesn't really matter who they are now because we're really hearing what they're saying. Or sometimes it's like, they need support. So you have their lower third there all the time because really then maybe not such good at speaking. So you have their title for what company they are and then you have it there all the time, which kind of supports them in a funny sort of way because who they are is more important than how well they're getting it across. So the answer is there are no standards for this. I'm sorry. Yeah, no standards. I, I will say in live, um, I usually, my, my rule of thumb is typically five to seven seconds. And that is one up, one down, three to five in the middle. Like, you know, and, and what I'm looking for is, is, is how long does it take me to read it? So when I'm designing, when I'm putting these together, I actually read it out loud. Like how long, and if I, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll have it flow in, but then we just let it hang. And so then we decide to just fade it out. Like we don't have an animation for it to leave. Um, that way we can just decide how long, and, and a lot of times it'll roll up and we'll watch it and I'll literally almost, you can almost see my mouth moving of like reading the person in a relatively comfortable to make sure that you had a chance to read it. Because the other side we get into is people have a really long name or really long title and we only gave it three seconds up and then people didn't get to see it. And you're trying to, you know, serve the audience as to giving them the information that they need and you've got to make sure you give it to them long enough. <laughs> so, but three to five or five to seven seconds is usually 99% of the lower thirds that that we do for live. Because the other thing is if you want to keep it as short as possible because I shot a close up of that person and I'm about to cut away, I can't cut away until I get rid of the lower third. <laughs> so, so I, so I need to, I need to make sure you can read it and I need, then I need to get out of there. So one thing that drives me crazy is when people build lower thirds that take a long time to get to the point because I'm hung until then. Like I can't move the, I can't, can't do that. Next question. Next question in from Zach Stallsmith in Chautauqua, New York. I've got a 2015 MacBook Pro running the latest OS. Can I use this Apple motion in the lower thirds? Alex? Yes. So if you look at the specifications for Final Cut Pro and Motion, they're the same specifications because the thing that's playing back stuff in Final Cut Pro is Motion. So if Motion plays well, sorry, if Final Cut Pro is, plays well on your um, on your 2015 Mac, it will be fine because essentially all those templates that are playing back, nearly 99% of all the titles built into Final Cut were made in Motion. And you can even open those titles in Motion to have a look and see how they were made. So if they it plays you can use it. So that'll be fine. And when I said, you know, I did 200 visual effects shots, that was in a motion in 2008 on a cheese grater and, and sometimes on a laptop. So there's plenty of, plenty of power there to do, do most of the work there. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. What sort of affordable lower third content automation is available for names, locators, and similar text other than professional systems like Chiron, et cetera? Any to integrate with rundown software? You know, Motion's not really a live, even though it does a lot of live output, it's not really designed as a live output for, uh, you know, for motion graphics to do for a show. So I think that what you're looking for is affordable 
Um, we have seen people do that. There's a, there's some been some software where people will take the because one thing about motion is it's generating an XML file, and so um, we have people. I have seen some software. I don't know, it, Alex. Do you know if that software's still out? I can't remember where. I think it kind of came out, and I don't remember it continuing on. But it would take the motion your motion document and literally build a live. You, you could build a template for a live output for their live output software from in motion because one of the hard things is to to build all the rules and is hard in motion but to just play it out was easier and so they figured out but i don't think that that software continued on so i don't th- i don't think this is probably the best way to do this i think you're going to use it as a you're going to render it out with an alpha channel render it out over black render it out um you know for or, or save it out for final cut uh, next question Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona. Is there a website or community where people upload motion lower third templates for those just starting off? And this is specifically for motion. <laughs> like, you know, so, so when we answer this question for the panelists, go ahead. Um, Alex, do you know? So um, there is there's a motion. There's not specifically that that I know of in terms of it being a community where there's, where there's that. But there are so many free Final Cut Pro templates. So every time you see Final Cut Pro title or free Final Cut Pro titles or FX, F, FCPX free, every time it's a motion, a, sorry, Final Cut Pro title template, the ones that are free, you can open up a motion and see how they work in that respect. Um, so I've made a, a bunch as well. So if you go to alex4d.com slash free one or free two, there's a, some, some lower thirds now. I don't do ones that are designed quite so much as more like functional uh, because I, I would like to make them flexible enough so you can use any typeface or any font or any color with them. But there's lots of free stuff out there and there's some sites which have kind of links to all the free Final Cut Pro templates. But they're all all of those templates that are free can be opened in motion for you to have a look at or to use for free in Final Cut Pro or to use for free in motion. I right, go ahead, Mitchell. I go to like uh, programs like Envato where you can download those uh, yeah, motion templates. Oh, are they motion templates? Do Envato yep. have motion? Yep, pro- oh, they sure do. Uh, you, you can go. select it under uh, vector graphics or uh, motion graphics. And sometimes I don't buy them. I just go there if I need a little inspiration. <laughs> like, oh, I can do that. One of the best resources for uh, graphics, in my opinion, is Motion VFX, which they do focus heavily on motion. And um, I like to tear apart there. When you buy their stuff, you get the motion document for it. Um, and, and you can tear apart it and learn a lot <laughs> about how they put them together. What were you going to say, Alex? Yes, they are crazy though. So you, you will actually, it's that's that's learning on hard mode. I must admit, because yeah, yeah, yeah. They, uh, yeah they will actually make things and more pretty complex in order just to get stuff done, but they're doing advanced stuff. So once you, you can take one of those things apart, it's like, the old days when you were four or five, you take a radio apart and the first four or five radios will fall apart. But when you put them back together properly, yeah. that's what that's well, what they're like. They're as complicated as a uh, as a radio that you'd actually have to put back together again before. I don't try to put them back together. Sense. I just try to, yeah. like, I just dig through them. A lot of times if I'm, you know, that's a place that I go. If I just need to throw a nice lower third, I don't have time to design it. I don't have time. You know, like, I'm just like, they have a lot of uh, really good stuff there. And, but yeah, I, I, I dig through them because I'm like, I don't, because I like to edit them a little bit. Like, oh, I want this, but I want this, or I want this, or I want that. Um, so I'll go dig into it. But a lot of times I just open it up. But like Alex, but even Alex sends me documents that I don't understand how they work in motion. Like he'll, he'll send me something. I'm like, I don't even know how you did that. You know, like, and, and, and so it's, uh, anyway, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you, start, you, you do catch on to the tricks they oh. use, like how to shy layers yeah. and uh, yeah. pre-compose yeah, yeah. that stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I found this. Uh, I don't know if this is an appropriate site uh, for Motion Array. I think they offer a variety of templates uh, for After Effects and Mogart and Final Cut Pro and DaVinci Resolve. And uh, you can just select them and tell them what, you know, if you want lower thirds, you, you click on lower thirds and it'll filter yeah. based on that. But uh, I think these are for sale. I don't think these are free. And and a lot of times I, I would say that it's, it's really, uh, it is really good to look at other people's lower thirds. If you look at the... The, we we go through lower thirds every once in a while in our show where we look at other people's lower thirds. We look at a, 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 um, that process. It's the reason I have YouTube TV is specifically because I have auto. I'm recording every broadcast all the time, and when I want to think about what are the current uses of lower thirds or super sources or whatever, I just it takes me half an hour to collect, you know, fifty different examples to kind of look at and piece apart. Um, next question. Robert Shoji from Los Angeles, California. What is the best resource for learning the basics of Apple Motion? Uh, I would say Ripple. <laughs> like you know, Ripple training is uh, so. Mark Mark Spencer does um, a bunch of trainings on on it. It is, I think, it's the best. Like as far as as uh, learning motion, it's it's really really well laid out, and usually they keep up with it. Alex, were you gonna? Absolutely, I would say I would say uh, Mark. Mark's yeah. videos are great. There's, there are many 50 or 60 free tips on motion on their channel if you go yeah. back. And I think they've got a playlist for using motion. So I would actually start off when it's worth paying for one of their tutorials and getting their, I don't know the names of the individual tutorials, but get their first main tutorial and buy that. And then probably I would guess if you look out for the word rigging, Rigging is the thing, is the real super secret source part of motion. Sounds kind of scary and weird, but it's to do with, um, but it's really worth knowing. Yeah. And once you've paid for those two and looked at those, then all his tips will just ex expand your knowledge and uh, your, it's more, as I said, he's very good at making you feel comfortable. Yeah. And once you get comfortable, then you're going to be okay. Usually when there's new things that come out in motion, a bunch of new features in the past when motions come out, I just wait for Mark's <laughs> training and get it. I'm, I'm, Mark's going to save me a whole lot of time and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to learn how to do that really quickly. Yeah. Uh, uh, so Ripple training is where we would recommend. Next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado has a question. Can motion be used in virtual reality 180? I want to add to the margins only visible in Pancake when mobile moved far left and far right. Let's realize the full potential of mobile content. Alex? Well, motion got 360 degree features a long time ago, uh, relatively far along, a longer time ago when they kind of bought in uh, Tim Dashwood's plugins. So they were um, tools that were, could be used inside Motion and Final Cut Pro, but they cost a bunch. But then they were built into Final Cut Pro and Motion. So they're first they were built into Motion, and that version of Motion is then made available inside Final Cut Pro. So they're as powerful as you'd get in anything in art inside After Effects and Premiere, but the advantage is that Motion and Final Cut Pro actually know what 360-degree video is as opposed to what After Effects and Premiere don't really know what it is. They're just being fooled into doing it in a funny sort of way. But most of the real experience and most of the knowledge out there is using uh, Premiere and After Effects to do 360-degree video. So I would say yes. The answer is yes in terms of monoscopic. It's the, what, it's, it's the stereoscopic in motion you 
don't quite have enough, you don't really have control of the left and right eyes. Essentially what you're doing is you're applying the same effects, controls, animations, graphics to the left and right eyes nearly all the time, apart from a few things. Um, so it's part of the way there, but Apple kind of stopped with version 0.9 and they didn't really get to 1.0 or 2 because it just went out of fashion just at the wrong time 360 degree video i would say well um so uh yeah so the answer is yes you can um but i would guess it's going to be back 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 soon because guess what's going to be used for the vision pro yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean i think that one of the things that's really important for apple is is that with the vision pro owning their own ability to generate content for their own hardware is something that's very Apple-y. And, you know, and like, so the, the, the um, so I think that making sure that I, I would assume that many features that we see, what I'm expecting from Final Cut next year, I think we got some updates here and there, but what I expect from, and with no knowledge, I don't have any inside knowledge, but with it, you know, I expect to see far more 180 and 360 tools being added to Final Cut in motion you know, by the end of next year, mostly because that that's Apple's way of making sure that they can produce those things, you know, like that they can, like there is a tool out there. Otherwise they're waiting for third parties to constantly build the content for, you know, to build to the tools to take advantage of their platform. And Apple doesn't like doing that. <laughs> like, you know, so, so I think that that's, you know, I, I think that that's going to, that's one of the big reasons that um, you're, we're going to see, you know, I think it's one of the big things that supports motion and final cut is the need for be able to own their own destiny in that, in that sense. Go ahead, Alex. Because the thing is that when we come to spatial audio, spatial audio is objects being anywhere you want them to be, and they produce sound. Apple's current definition of spatial media is media in a room that can be in any distance in any position. And it, the interesting thing is that spatial media is not the same as spatial video, because obviously spatial media is actually spatial audio plus spatial video. So Apple's definition is slightly not quite right, in my opinion, because essentially what they're saying for now is spatial video is stereo video mm -hmm. over a small area, which actually doesn't make that much sense. It's not much of a leap. But if spatial video is a video object which has can be positioned anywhere in 3D space and actually has an alpha channel and depth implicit within it, then Final Cut Pro and Motion are going to be really good at working on the individual video objects that then it will be composited in real time when we well, use spatial video. And of course, we have all that data. As a, taking a motion file that you built and putting it into 3D is something that is quite possible as well. So, I mean, it's it, it, there's a lot that can be done from an authoring perspective inside of Motion. So it'll be really interesting to see what where that goes. Uh, next question. Robert Shoji from Los Angeles, California. Any plans in after hours for Apple Motion workshops? Yes, we're starting here. <laughs> so, so anyway, so so we'll do a couple of weeks of this, and then we'll 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 do more of it. But I think that it's an important thing to cover. Go ahead, Alex. Yes. So this is an experiment to see if I can get my mind around how to explain this slowly enough and clearly enough. Yeah. Because I'm no trainer. I may know how to do it, and I think I'm quite good at. But you have an English accent. As an American, we're like you have an English accent, so you have you're you're already halfway there. <laughs> and, <laughs> Thank and, you very much. And then and then and then you have then you have an you're you're one of the most knowledgeable people in motion. So then you have another thirty or forty percent of it. So I think that I think we'll do we'll do well. So yes, I'm I, I'm exploring doing it uh, this week and next week, and then we'll yeah. kind of have a much more free form hanging out with method. I think yeah. it'll be quite nice. So yeah. that's what I'd like to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you don't have to feel like like for, especially for these, you don't have to feel like you have to walk through everything. You can just show stuff, and we'll talk about it. Uh, next question. 
Peter Belbin in uh, Houston, Texas asks, I've seen motion rendering out content for later playout, but could it be used to live render the output with key and fill via SDI? I go ahead, Alec. I, I, the answer is I'll, I'll, I'll cut to the chase on this one. No, <laughs> like it's not, it's not a pure, it doesn't lock the frame rate and it doesn't lock out like that. And you just won't. Um, I've thought about that for a long time and then realized that the engine just isn't built for that kind of work and it would take an enormous amount of engineering. Like we'd probably stop getting features for a year or two if we um, if we allowed it to, if we tried to do key fill out. Um, what it does do is do uh, an alpha channel out. So we render ProRes from motion um, in 4444 or we render sequences out that we can use inside of these engines, but we can't do it directly from motion. You're going to say something, Alex? So in practice, Apple are not interested in the terms key fill. It doesn't get them excited. But if we say, wouldn't it be good if we had live spatial video output from motion? It's actually what we're really talking about, funnily uh, enough. It would be, it'd be, it'd be hard. I mean, again, the engine to lock an engine to a frame rate is, is not trivial. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. so that's the, if, if you look at like, for instance, um, you know, Unreal, I mean, Epic, to get Epic to do broadcast graphics was not a non-trivial task. Like it was an enormous amount of engineering and Unity chose not to go down that path because they were like, well, that's, that's hard. But I suppose what I'm saying is that if we get Apple to use the Vision Pro budget to get it to do it, it's more like they're more likely Maybe. to invest the engineering. Maybe I just don't even know I'd want, I don't even know if I'd want their engineers to worry about it. Like I feel like I'd love to have an app that read motion files and output and and was a what's I, what I need for a real time playout engine. Also, I don't want to have all that interface there to do it. I want it to be. I just think it's a different. It's a different pro, process. You know, like it's a there's a there's what I need in a consumer car. I have I need access to my radio and I need everything to be a certain way and I want to be able to turn the air conditioning on. And there's another version of it that is the the NASCAR or Formula One car, which is a much different interface. And I think that that I think that that's the thing that I don't think I would want them to do, you know, expend energy trying to, you know, do what you're talking about. What I would love is proper TGA export, frame, proper uh, frame sequences of TGAs, not going through a compressor and not as a compressed TGA format, because then we could export things easily for our Blackmagic hardware, um, because the pings have some aliasing issues and the, and so now I, you know, getting TGAs out of, out of, um, Motion is no t- trivial task. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, it, for me, it requires After Effects. Uh, next question. Robert Sababity in Poland. What is the latest trends in lower thirds, and is it viable to follow these trends and suggest them to clients? I go to Alex. Well, I think clients still like being t- being like TV, like TV news, I would say. So um, be like Alex and essentially have lots of recordings of news shows that news that you like and news that you don't like so obviously you could point to cnn and say they may do it but it's rubbish right because it is because they're totally oh gosh, kind of worst. schizophrenic when it comes to typography and design so um sorry if you're, watching, if, you're, if, if you're watching this from cnn like stretching text is not okay i don't care i don't care it's just it's, it's not okay uh, but essentially the fashions come with big so I would say in Europe, strangely enough, the Eurovision Song Contest is a big deal because essentially it's the peak of technology in lots of different aspects. It's actually the peak of technology when it comes to live events in terms of synchronizing lots of 
sources from all over Europe, all over the Eurovision network, which is actually a network of other places like Australia and Israel as well. And weirdly enough, clients will look at that and say, wow, can I actually have what they have there? And then usually what happens, those are usually appear in live tours. So you have people like George Michael, then it would be one who will be walking on an LCD screen. So that was kind of popularized on their Eurovision Song Contest. And then you see it in a tour by somebody who can really spend a lot of money. So the equivalent these days, of course, would be Beyonce or Taylor Swift in terms of if they want to get into high tech stage stuff. So look at the Beyonce uh, Renaissance movie, if you want to see in terms of switching and complex stuff like yeah. that, in terms of influential stuff, because that's where the agents will come from. And to some extent, so you come in from the, some people say the low end, but I would say the real end, which is essentially TikTok and what those people, those things can do, and from um, news broadcasts. But it depends on your client and the kind of audiences that they're kind of going for and how they want to be taken seriously. Um, so the fashions do change. Um, serifs are kind of coming back a little bit because oh, no. we because graphic designers really no, like serif no, but no. um there are lots of technical problems with it just like red came back a lot yeah about 20 years ago because we couldn't have it before so sometimes it it. <laughs> red is horrible like hard, you know, hard red is like i mean if you have anything that's going to go through an h264 compressor it's not your friend now you know so, alex is kryptonite <laughs> so uh, yeah so turn that on air switch light off back there um, so <laughs> i would say yes yeah, so, uh, there's fashion there are fashions and all these kind of things but essentially you have to kind of be with fashion for a while so i would say in the uk things sl sliding in and out of mats um in other words individual text coming out of invisible boxes was fashionable for a while, but now we're fading up and melting on and doing slightly more advanced things. So weirdly enough, to some extent, social media graphics are influencing news, which is now influencing business graphics and stuff like that. So I can't point to anything in particular, but I would say um, maybe things in boxes is going slightly out of fashion. In other words, text and different colored boxes, although laid on top of each other, are more likely to use um, text over backgrounds, but doing something to those backgrounds, those video backgrounds to make them still clear as people uh, have text and stuff on top. But different designers, different graphic designers will have different opinions on that. I try to keep it as simple as possible when I'm building lower thirds, unless someone has a budget to do go, go crazy. Like the worst part is when people don't have a budget and then try to make something super designed, you just end up with kind of a, you know, it's a, a road to nowhere. What were you going to say, Alex? That's the thing. Essentially what happens is you're adding lots of emotional design quality to some text and then what you're doing is you're overloading it a little bit and then people are trying to interpret the design and what does it mean and then you've made it too distracting and you made people think about what typeface is being used and how blurry it is or how it blurred on or something like that and as opposed to what the person is saying because it hopefully what's being got across in videos and in broadcasts and news reports and events is emotional and human, human contact. Mm -hmm. And if human contact is actually being distracted by, Ooh, that's a pretty effect, then we're in trouble. Yeah. And, and it's so easy to be as a designer to do things that you, this is the problem. Oh, this is the problem on so many things, but the problem with some filmmaking, the problem with corporate events and other events and the problem with graphics is the people who do it get bored and then they want to do something different because they're bored, but it doesn't serve the audience. <laughs> it's like the audience, you know, and, and so they're doing things that, you know, make them happy, but it doesn't necessarily make the 
audience happy, you know, and I think that that's the challenge, you know. And then there's some that, you know, I will, I will flat out say that I, the uh, Thursday night and Sunday night football graphics are the best in the uh, best I've ever seen. Like if you wanted to do a master's course, take a whole year and just try to reproduce those in After Effects or Motion or whatever and just try, try. Don't, don't assume that you can. Um, if you look at the detail inside of those graphics, the level of complexity inside of the, what's going on there is intense. You know, like, and so, but yeah, you were say something, Alex? We were talking about motion VFX uh, templates earlier, and they're really, really good. But what you will see in the user interface for the motion VFX templates in Final Cut Pro, and they also do them for Resolve, is they give you every single possible option. You can change the color of everything, the typeface of everything, the position of everything, the position of every single drop shadow. Because, to some extent, naturally, they are motion graphics designers who want to give the features of all what a motion graphics designer would like in the editing right. software. Most editors don't want that because sometimes they're sitting next to a creative person who, or someone who thinks they're creative. So then you're sitting next to a director or producer and exactly. then they, they see it as a toy box that they want yeah. to play with. And the editor, you just go, no, I just want to show them three options and I don't want any other options to be visible to these people. Otherwise, they'll just want to play and we have no well, time for that. And another thing is this consistency of just like, I'm going to give this to 10 editors. I need them to all do it the same way. I don't want them to accidentally or even on, on purpose change the way the look and feel of the lower thirds because they all have to look the same. And we'll talk about that, which is quickly becoming, just so you know, uh, a part two of this will actually be doing the lower third uh, in, in for next week because uh, we got so many questions. But this is a question-driven show, so we're going to answer questions. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Robert, uh, don't pay attention to what uh, is happening here in the U.S. Uh, dancing bugs in the lower third um, is very annoying. It's distracting. Okay. Um, I think that our <laughs> friends at the BBC are doing a great job of yeah. teaching us how to be simple, uh, clean, and easy. And I think, Alex, you do a few of those. I, um, I, yeah, Alex, uh, go ahead, Alex. What were you saying? Yes, I've been involved in the uh, rebrand of the BBC News Channel, which is available all over the world. It's available on TV near you. So I've been involved in some of the packages associated with that. Yes, and I will so say the stuff go, go. between shows, not necessarily the editorial stuff, which is also really good as well. I, the BBC is actually one of the th one of my reference points of like for keeping it simple and making it really effective and. All the little things there, it's, it's really exceptional. Uh, next question. And it's from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA. What methods will accommodate Apple motion graphics for live broadcast? What platforms might accommodate motion imports without pre-render into a video playout? Is variable text import possible to rapidly create lower thirds for live? As I said, there was a company that did this, but it didn't, I don't think it lasted. So it was just, they, they, they had kind of gone down that path, but uh, there isn't, there isn't a way to do that right now. Right now you're still rendering out those, those assets. Now, sometimes what happens is, is we have, you render the background assets and the text replaces, you know, the, the text is not there. And then your, your live graphic goes over top of that. Next question. And it's from Alton Christensen in New York, New York, slightly off topic, wondering what the best green screen keyers for motion internal to the app or third party. Do you use any green screen keyers, Alex? No, it's not really my world. Um, yeah. So I think Hawaii Kia is a, a, was a good object based or recognizing people, but not all, just mm -hmm. many people, but not objects, but it's like a good automatic key. But the key that's actually in motion is the same one that's in Final Cut. There's a few other, it's, a few more features in it, but it's, it's really, really, really good. Yeah, it's, it's really powerful. I mean, that was the end of my product. I had a thing called DVMAT, which I funded an entire company for quite some time over the fact that Apple did not have a good green screen keyer. Thank you, Apple. And we appreciate 
all of the money that you focused towards my company to do that. Um, but as soon as the new Final Cut keyer came out, I was like, well, that's it. <laughs> like, like, like that, that's the end of that. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty strong uh, keyer. The, uh, what I use for most of the stuff that I did, did in the past when we were doing those hundreds of shots of green screen was all Conduit. We built a plugin for Conduit. So we had a nodal compositor inside of Motion, which was the most powerful solution that we had had. I mean, it was like having like a mini flame. Next question. Next question from Eduardo Augustine at Panama City, Panama. What is the most creative content you have seen in lower thirds? The usual is the social media handles, name, job, title, company, something new? Now go ahead, um, Alex. Have you seen anything that you pay a lot of attention to? Well, I mean, of course, what we're really saying is don't lean on your a cool lower third to save your production or spend time trying to find one before you get on and do your work. Because essentially... It's tempting to treat your lower thirds as that that one thing I want to put on my tripod or that bit of camera control system. Don't let a simple lower third stop you from just getting on and making stuff. So I know it's tempting to say, because obviously it's possible to make it so that it will be a globe spinning or a map of the world or some live video or I haven't, I must admit, I haven't seen anything that's complicated or advanced that is a good idea recently. Because it is tempting to show show off and do neat stuff. But then what you're doing is you're speaking to motion graphics people. You're not speaking to the audience. So I know it's tempting to say, I'm really going to make the client amazingly grateful because I found this really cool lower third. But if you edit, or in my case, doing corporate video when I was doing that, if you come up with a good way of telling the story that really gets the idea across or carries the emotion across, they won't care about the lower thirds. Now, I know we're talking about lower thirds here, but it's more about using them to get information across. And sometimes lower thirds are just statutory. We have to say who they are, but really, if you make the video well enough, it doesn't matter who they are because you care about what they're saying. So sorry. <laughs> I once made a lower third that looked like it was a piece of wood that came out and then looked like someone chiseled the name in, you know, uh, you know, of it, like it did it really, really fast. And it was amazing for the first two times we saw it. <laughs> and after that, it was super annoying. Go ahead, Courtney. I see a lot on the cable news networks these days. They The lower thirds, they'll cut to someone in the field and they'll have their name and where they are. And then they'll have a banner that either scrolls or is static. That's basically the topic, you know, you know pulled Timmy from the well, you know, or, or whatever the subject of this, the news story is that that person is talking about. So that you just, if you just tuned in, you know what that person is talking about because it has a little tagline or a scrolling, uh, a scrolling uh, banner that tells you what he's talking about. The, the, the crazy one is like in, for this week in George Stephanopoulos with ABC, they have this thing that is supposed to tell you where they're going and they never move past the first one. And you're like, I don't know why you put that there. So you have to look at like what you're putting in there and make sure it's not aspirational. Every week it's like that. It's like, it's like Lucy and the football. I mean, it's like you, you think they're going to actually go somewhere and then they, they do not. So, but, but I will say that the ones that I enjoy, like I can just sit and watch the lower. If you told me all I get to do is watch the lower thirds for, Thursday night and Sunday night football, I would just, I, I can sit there and watch them because they're just, it's, it's this treasure trove of, of, uh, of graphics. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. So just so in the case of the BBC, they change from, they still call it a ticker, but they rise each story up one yeah. at a time and hold it for a little bit. And sometimes a little flashing square to say we've changed it. So flashing square lets you, makes you look down and see it and then read that point. 
but usually they are different stories, not about the current story. So that effectively what you have the choice to do if you are seeing it with the screen off is you're being caught up on everything else, but not necessarily the content that you're in. So it's a, it's a real editorial policy thing that. I'm a big fan of fl flipping them and not scrolling because the problem with scrolling is, is that on lower frame rates, you see this da, 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 or they motion blur and you can't read it. So you have one or the other and it never works out. Next question. Next one in from Robert Shoji in Los Angeles, California. Has Alex created an audio visualizer template in motion? If so, is the template available? I have not, but I should. I will do that as another. I'm not sure which Alex. I mean, I've done, I think I talked about it in the past. Have you done any audio visualizers, Alex? It's not really possible from the point of view for, for Final Cut Pro audio visualizing. Um, not directly. Um, not using just motion no, in Final not Cut. Not in real time, you mean? No, so I, you can't have an audio clip and then have uh, stuff respond a video clip that includes audio and drop a something on in Final Cut Pro because motion doesn't get any audio information from the clip. It just doesn't happen. So that, that's the kind of thing that I used to do in After Effects in the nineties. Obviously, yeah. in terms of just making cool uh, rave type videos, using mm -hmm. the sound of the bass and choosing which parts. So there are tools in motion to say, okay, respond to the bass part of this music or mm -hmm. the sound or the treble. You can do that. But that's a render and make in motion and export as a motion project, not as a template uh, that works inside Final Cut Pro. Yeah. But there is actually a, so a third-party tool, I think, that will do some that's related to that sort of thing. But watch out. Sometimes all you're really doing is setting the BPM, and then it just does a beat to the BPM of whatever music you have to type in the BPM, and then it just feels like it's in sync, but it isn't really. Next question. Eduardo Augustine in Panama City, Panama. What is the expected amount of details or data in the lower thirds? Only what you need. <laughs> like, like I just remember someone has to read that. So, and I think it depends on how long it stays up there, right? Right, Alex? Yes. I mean, sometimes what you're doing is another, for broadcast, another thing, and also to some extent at events, is calls to action. So you want somebody to do something. You want them to use a hashtag or you want them to put something on social media. So those things stay for longer. It's more, uh, is this directing people to do something or is it new if you, people, information to add to what they're seeing? So you have to choose. Essentially, you do end up with a whole kind of palette, like a whole kind of um, everything turns into Bloomberg, really, effectively. And then you, if you like, there's always some stuff putting up there. You can put some statistics up the side of your screen saying how many tweets there have been, sorry, how many posts there have been in the last few seconds or on that hashtag. And there's stuff that will feed into it. But the question is, that's quite good for a display maybe at an event that you're walking past and you just want to catch somebody's eye and you want to then use that to catch their eye. But really, it's the content that should be leading to something. In other words, the content is the thing that is like, okay, I've that caught my eye because I saw a funny tweet. But then there's the CEO of the organization is putting this event on and he's telling, telling me something or she's telling me go to this event or do something. It's more calls to action, what to do next with this information. That's kind of what the information is about if it's not about emotion. Next question. Uh, here's a question coming to you from the Adobe guy, me. Is there a way to convert a motion file to a Mogard file for Premiere Pro? Pro. No, not directly. Effectively, you have to recreate them. Um, yes, you just effectively have to know After Effects and Motion well enough to be able to re recreate one and the other. Uh, 
if I had access to anybody, the Apple team, I would like it if I could press an option key, a key and press the T key to make it so I can set the transparency or the opacity of a motion layer, because it's the kind of thing I'm doing all the time and all those keyboard shortcuts. I think there is possible to kind of make it so that to make motion people, sorry, After Effects people more comfortable. But if you want the power of motion, but you like the user interface of After Effects, and you want to have something that has the power of motion from the point of real-time animation and play, then consider, oh, what's it called? Just went out of my head. Um, it's an app which has the real-time animation of uh, motion, but with the After Effects user interface plus grouping, because grouping stuff into layers is very useful. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, I'll, I'll come back to it, and I'll say what it is in a minute, once I remember. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado asks, could you see lower thirds being replaced by USDZ in spatial content? Uh, probably not. Like, I think that you'll use those as objects. I think that uh, you still have lower thirds and other things being, you know, what we've done is really spread those out, but we still have 2D. They're in 3D, but they're 2D layers in a 3D space. Uh, next question. Next question in from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Is there such a thing as a bokeh effect in a lower third or other graphic? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Alex. You can render um, lens flares, and then you can make a lens flares. But effectively, remember, to some extent, the graphic design and the graphic features of motion are 2011. <laughs> so you get the lens flares of 20, 2010, 2011 from that point of view. But uh, motion VFX do a very nice uh, lens flare uh, extension or a, a generator that you can use within motion. And then, of course, that will be in Final Cut Pro. But it's not exactly bokeh. But... File Cut Motion can take some footage that's in File Cut Pro and add a very nice bokeh lens blur to it. So I could actually say, okay, under this person's, any part of the screen, I can select it and make it so that there's uh, pentangles or uh, pentagons or septagons. In fact, there is a free plugin of mine called the Lens Blur, or it's like it's called Seven Free Blurs. But all it is is some stuff that was from Motion just made available in the File Cut, which includes much nicer bokeh. Uh, Alex4D, sorry, alex4d.com slash free one to see if you can find the stuff to do blurs and include a nice lens blur things free. Nice. Uh, last question. Last question from Eduardo Augustine in Panama City, Panama. Are we going to have a detailed lab on SPX graphics, create dynamic HTML5, CSS3, lower thirds? I think, I think it'd be fun to bring in Tuomo and, and, and work on those things. So stay tuned for more of, of those types of things. I think we've had Tuomo on to show some of his new products, but having him come on and actually us building something with him, I think would be a lot of fun. Um, so as you see, we, we didn't quite get to actually making, we promised a, a lower third graphic, but we didn't quite actually get to that. But again, I'm the, the thing to know about how the show works is that we do things to, to generate questions. Like, you know, so, so, you know, so to have, you know, to, to, to kind of fill in the gaps that you have there. So, uh, with Alex's permission, we'll move this lower third conversation to next week and actually immediately dive into making a lower third and, and sending it to Final Cut and then answering more of your questions about it. But I, I do think that it's an important little series that we're doing here as an experiment to see, you know, what people think about it and, and how they want to jump into it. I think it's a, I mean, for 50, it's at $50, it's, the best one of the best buys in computer graphics ever <laughs> you know like as far as utility i use it almost every day i don't use it nearly as technically as alex does and he sends me projects that confuse me but but um but but so i'm not i'm not the the same level of uh, skill but i i use it a lot and it's a really for 50 bucks 
paid once, never an upgrade, never anything else. It's a great, it's a great tool to have in, if you're on a Mac side. Um, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. So before I sign off, I just want to say, if you are a motion, if After Effects user, and you like the idea of motion, but the user interface is a bit weird, it's called Cavalry. The app oh, yeah. is called Cavalry from Scene Group. And it's, it is very friendly for motion After Effects users, but who want to have a real-time playground. But thank you very much for including me with this, Alex. I'm looking forward to continuing this on an open-ended, let's go with yeah. where the audience wants. Yeah. Because why not? Uh, Absolutely. So uh, bring your questions. If you've got questions, if you start playing with motion and you've got questions, is there still a 90 day or 30 day version of motion out there? I don't know that 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 demo went away. So but it's 50 bucks. <laughs> so if you get a couple, you know, just just stop drinking coffee for a couple of weeks and then you'll be, you'll be good to go. So uh, anyway, so thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks to the uh, incredible team that does this every single day um, that, you know, there's a team that's managing the um, these shows that is uh, you know, cutting the show, adding, you know, adding the graphics to the show and figuring out how that's going to work. There's a development team and they get all of this stuff uh, put together every single day, seven days a week. And we really appreciate your work. And thanks to the panelists. Can't do this without you. And of course, thanks to the great producers who threw in all these extra questions today, which is great. Uh, so so thanks to um, thanks to the producers who uh, keep this show running and, and make it a much more enjoyable show, in my opinion. Trying to come up with two hours of things to say is a lot harder than just being able to answer your great questions. And so uh, we didn't get to nearly all the questions in the first hour. If, if a reminder that if we kick your question back, we only send it back to your little hamburger up in the upper right. You can always resubmit those questions. Um, so uh, so we had a lot of questions for the first hour that, that, that we didn't quite get to. So go ahead and submit those for tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. So um, anyway, uh, <laughs> so there you go. Uh, we traveled uh, 68,000 miles today, 111,000 kilometers, and that is 546 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Has <laughs> to watch the double decker buses go by Alex's window. That's always fun. But uh, for those who can't see me, I'm using the Queen's waving from the carriage. Wave. That's what she does from the carriage. Yeah, this pot of tea. I've actually saw the Queen going by in a car a few times on oh, really? this road. This is the road that goes out of North London, goes oh, along here. Great. Did you wave? Uh, no. <laughs> We're too cool. Too cool for scroll. Yeah, whatever. It's just the queen. It's just the queen, you know, exactly. Now he's the king. Yes. <laughs> All right. See you later. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. It's great. Good job, guys. Thanks. <laughs>